The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 20 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the bi-weekly podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Very glad to no longer be partying like it's 2099. I'm Adam. And speaking of partying, I always take it to the max. I'm Michael. Adam, I'm so glad to have you back from the future. Do you miss the world of 2099? In the words of Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan, the best place to be is here. The best time to be is now. And you know, Michael, speaking of the here and now, tonight we have a guest whose sense of humor is beyond time and space. From the After Lunch podcast and my fellow brother in the Nerd Lunch 4th Chair Army, where he earned the nickname Podcast Poison. But for our purposes tonight, we'll upgrade him to Podcast Venom. It's Rob Graham. Hi, guys. Uh, As someone named Rob, who hasn't blocked you on Twitter yet, thanks for having me on. It's really great to be here. Well, thanks, Rob. At least we know that somebody named Rob still likes us. Yeah, there was the word yet in there. Just want to let you guys know. It's, yet, yet is in there. We'll see how it goes. Yes. Well, we are glad to have you here, Rob. Now, uh, you were a frequent guest on the Nerd Lunch podcast, now defunct. And then the After Lunch podcast is, is the sequel show to that. And suddenly you finally take it on full co-host status. How do you feel about that? Yeah, so Nerd Lunch, as you said, is defunct, but now that After Lunch, now that I'm on there, it is officially funked. Like, After Lunch (laughs) is full-fledged funked now. I'm on there just bringing the funk every episode. (laughs) Actually, it's really fun. It was super nice. Michael May, as uh, maybe your listeners know, is on, I don't know, 17 million podcasts. And so (laughs) it's great to just be able to be on with him. I think he's uh, super great, super nice, super gregarious. Alicia's is a really cool guy. And just to keep even going in the trend of Nerd Lunch is a lot of fun because Nerd Lunch had so many awesome episodes, special themes and that kind of stuff. And we're trying to keep that going. And I I just I I love the vibe of it. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and we have more uh, alumni on the way. PAX will be here soon, and Michael Bay himself is scheduled for an issue oh, down the line. Cool. So very, very good. But, you know, Rob, enough about these podcasts and all of that excitement. We want to get back to the beginning of Rob. We want, you know, <laughs> Rob 0.0. So why don't you tell us about your origin story? Comics are are right there at the core, too. Uh, I am uh, the youngest of five boys, so you can pity my parents now in retrospect for how that was. And I'm sure, as everyone knows, uh, having older siblings is kind of a blessing and a curse. You know, the curse is when uh, they beat you up and just generally treat you like, you know, something they found on the bottom of their shoe. But the blessing is every once in a while they're nice to you and they give you their, their table scraps. And for me, 
I, one of my older brothers, once he started having spending money, he would buy comic books. And what was great for my purposes, he wasn't so precious about them that like he was he wasn't like a collector where he had a bag and board his comics like immediately upon reading them or never read them and just bag and board them for their value so he would read them and not treat them super well and then i he'd let me read them when he was done with them and then i wouldn't treat them well <laughs> but it it just really got me hooked at a super early age i read everything i could get my hands on like as a kid i read all of the sherlock holmes stories i i read all kinds of things but comics and particularly spider-man became my my very favorite of all of them so that was my origin story but since then i've i've grown past all that stuff you know like you know you, you become an adult and you don't care about comic books anymore so anyway, you can find me as Spidey004 on Twitter, <laughs> or maybe you'll just see me driving around my my, my town in a, a red car that I call the Spidermobile that actually has little suction cup Spideys on each of the rear windows. So yeah, it's just, I'm well past all that. Uh, Glad that. to know you've matured, Rob. Yeah, yes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now, I'm curious, so what were your go-to comics, let's say, you know, obviously Spidey, these comics that you inherited initially, but when you started buying them yourself, who were you real deep into? Spidey remained, but I expanded out. So I, I've read, it was both Marvel and DC, but Marvel was definitely, it wasn't a 60-40, it was probably more like an... 70 30 80 20 situation with marvel versus dc i definitely read you know batman and superman wonder woman kind of comics but for marvel uh, uh spidey was big daredevil was big fantastic four was really big for me captain america was big kind of off and on and then became big later in life like when brubaker came on so that those are probably my my biggest ones and these days, with the, the glory that is Marvel Unlimited, uh, it's expanded to just about everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All covers for Marvel. That's good. Oh, my gosh. Because as a kid or growing up, like, my brother never bought Thor comics, and I never on my own was buying Thor comics. But like now that I can read all of them and they're all just available, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of really cool stories in here and that, that kind of stuff. The discoveries on uh, that app are fantastic. Now, did you have any book you tried to jump onto in the 90s just out of pure hype and, uh, you know, maybe some sort of speculative buying? Was there ever a moment for you where you delved into something not Marvel or DC? No, in fact, independent stuff like you know, not the big two, really came in as a as an adult. Like that's where I and I, and for me, everything I I've always been terrible just as a a messy person. Like I've never <laughs> been good at keeping things nice. I actually do have a few long boxes. Like eventually, I was like, I got to do something with these piles of comic books that ended up crumpled under my bed. But that none of them, like I don't have anything that's of any value <laughs> at all. I, there, I would just read them. I wouldn't treat them super nicely and then they'd end up like under the bed and then eventually i i have uh long boxes and these days i would say uh i apologize to all uh local comic book stores i'm part of the problem these days <laughs> <laughs> i am i am all digital all the time uh because it's just so darn convenient it is convenient i'll i'll give you that i still go to my comic book store weekly and i like to buy a physical comic and hold it in my hand but sometimes like i'm looking around my office right now I'm about a hundred deep on things that I'm behind on reading that I've spent a lot of money on over the sure, last sure. year or so. You know, you make an interesting point though. Like you said earlier that you weren't into the 
non-Big 2 until an adult, and I was the same way. Like, if it was outside of Marvel and DC, I didn't know it existed in the 90s, or, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's exactly my situation. Exactly. In fact, uh, like, you know, some of them reading assignments for this podcast, I, I was reading about all of the uh, the image books and and those, and I, I'm aware of them peripherally, but, I, like, there wasn't a single one that I was like, oh, yeah, I remember reading that, or, you know, oh, it's <laughs> Death Blow, or whatever. I don't know. We're going to have a heck of a conversation tonight. I'll tell you. <laughs> there's plenty of things that are coming yes. up that I'll, I'll be able to chime in on. But, uh, but there's a lot where I just, I never read that stuff. So it, it never, you know, figured in. You, you have such a finite uh, amount of money, or at least I did, when I was finally buying comics that I was kind of sticking with, oh, I remember uh, Frank Miller's on Daredevil. I'm going to pick up that one, you know, that kind of thing. We got Simonson on Fantastic Four. I'm going to get that. But uh, like Michael said, I never got past the big two. And for me, again, it was kind of the big one. And then there was kind of a junior partner of DC. And then <laughs> uh, then I, I suppose I knew that other things existed, but they weren't really in my, my orbit. Well, this is uh, exciting for us, though, to have a friendly neighborhood, Rob, on the podcast <laughs> tonight. But I think it's time that we open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. <laughs> Uh-oh, we got some hate mail in this mailbag. That's right. Oh, boy. We have uh, an important discussion to bring to you. If you've been listening to the last few episodes, you are aware of an incident, something we're calling the Liefeld Affair. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're calling it? I didn't know that. It's news to me. It's official now. Okay. And so what I would like to do is take you all back just a few weeks ago to an incident that uh, shook social media, the Twitterverse, and certainly has led to a, a divisive world. Uh, not that we weren't already divisive, and so I, I must explain what has occurred here. We were trending worldwide. <laughs> worldwide. <laughs> so... On the Fighting American Part 2 episode of the Observations podcast, Rob Liefeld went on a rant about Wizard Magazine that went a little something like this. I didn't take it personally. It wasn't an emotionally uh, upsetting thing. It was like, this is a business challenge. This is another hurdle. This is a period in my career where, again, as Joe King from Marvel Comics, as he was exiting Marvel, uh, reminded me on Heroes Reborn, you are seen as the weaker party now um, that you are taking on water and people are going to take shots at you. And I felt like this was Marvel really ne uh, dealing me uh, a, a crucial blow and trying to also damage Fighting American pu publicity-wise by saying this is a cheap ripoff of Captain America. Marvel did not want to educate you and tell you that there was a handsome history of Simon and Kirby. Uh and, and this fighting American character. And irresponsible outlets like the Wizard Magazine were also fueling that flame that Fighting American was somehow a ripoff of Captain America. They, they were not interested in educating you and telling you about Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's illustrious history and work on this character. Again, so Marvel is seeking to stop us from doing this. The fan magazines are fueling that I am ripping off Marvel, which is not true. That is in an effort to diminish me to carry Marvel's water. Wizard was carrying every bucket of water Marvel would give them at the time. Wizard was not run by like established professionals. It was born out of a comic store. 
and the enthusiasm that the Seamus family had for comic books. But once it started making money, Garib and his family moved further away and they left it in the hands of a bunch of irresponsible kids who couldn't get breaks as writers and artists in comics. This is a fact. Recently, just as an addendum, DC Comics cratered. DC Comics in the modern world of 2020 has cratered. Their sales have cratered. Their market share has cratered. They have been losing uh, sometimes by 15 percentage points to Marvel. And the entire time, this five-year period, they allowed all of these fired wizard editors who drove wizard into the ground in the mid-2000s. They, 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 one after the other, they caught the ear of these DC Comics, AT&T, whatever, Warner Brothers people, and they got one, two, three in the door. There is one. Honestly, I, I, I won't say his name, but one of the... Yeah, well, his name's Pat. Pat uh, was one of the biggest anti-Liefeld inflamers at Wizard. And a couple of years back, during the night, during the DC 52, I am walking the floor of San Diego. Uh, I am having the best time. I got my kids with me. We've got our toys. we got our stuff. And I see Pat who is very tall, uh, youngish, 30-ish now, you know, no longer the, the 20-something brat face that is, uh, that is manipulating Wizard Magazine, is standing, directing people in and out of Jeff Johns' line. He is the guardian of the line for Jeff Johns at the giant DC booth. And I stopped, because I couldn't resist. And I stopped in front of him, I said, look at you, is this, is this, is this what you're doing now? So, so you manage lines? on signings for DC Comics. Wow! And you used to ruin the entire industry running the controls at Wizard Magazine. It was fun. It was snarky. I didn't mind taking that shot. They had done their best to damage me on personal levels, on business levels. And here's this guy, and he smirked at me because what's he going to say? He is, in fact, uh, controlling the velvet rope that gets you to Jeff Johns at the signing. And Jeff just looked at me... Jeff Johns, who has known me a long time, just shook his head like smiling and going, you Rob, like, because Jeff is just laughing. I'm also working at DC at this time. I'm actually producing Deathstroke that summer. So it was funny that Mr. Pat went from operating Wizard, crashing it into the ground, um, along with his good friends, Brian and Jim, and uh, I think a guy named Mike. These clowns were a bunch of kids who wanted to... Um, uh, take shots at character at, at characters they didn't like, at creators they didn't like, and once they got the helm and Wizard became this snarky machine, uh, it, it started. It immediately went sideways, and and it should be no shock to you that it eventually cratered and went out of business. And the one thing that I take great pleasure in, as I've reminded people here before, and I do this really, when you are in this business and you take on all comers, I have seen the people at the controls of these magazines. Uh, that they, they, they disappear, they vanish. They wield this immediate. They wield this temporary power, and it's irresponsible what they do. And then eventually, to the point that they don't have power to wield because their seat is no longer there. Because that building closed, that publication closed, that outlet no longer exists. They won't admit to the lengths with which they helped destroy it. But that's how things go. So, so, so this is. The great thing about longevity is you get to watch some people who do bad things kind of get their comeuppance. And the Wizard Magazine uh, manipulated uh, many times for their own personal investments or whatever the store had bought. All of those stories are true. They would get artists in on visas that they would control. Like, hey, we'll support your visa if you're from Canada. If you're from a... I mean, again, Canada is the closest. London, any you have to have a sponsor 
And um, I've done that with certain talents. I've never asked anything special of them. Wizard would, in fact, get artists on visas and then start doing the dance with them, attempting to make them something maybe more than they are, um, manipulate prices, manipulate heat. This is the kind of stuff they did, and this is where I'm going to get off the bus about Wizard at this time, only to reinforce that their, resp- their reporting on Fighting American was so irresponsible that it, it, it was putting forth lies rather than the truth right down to the final judgment. Okay, so what what did you guys think about Rob's comments there? What was your general sense about the the accusations he made and the attitude he had about former Wizard staffers? I mean, the fact that he wasted five minutes of people's lives to talk about complaints that were 30 years old is still mind-boggling to me. I I, I think he's just like, like sour grapes, you know? It's just... Get over yourself, dude. Who cares? Gold-plated sour grapes. Yeah, I'm going to chime in uh, with Michael on, on that one. I So I, I did my listening for this. I, I wasn't super aware of what was going on uh, with the back and forth. But You, you didn't yeah. know about the, the tor- turmoil we're dealing with right now with Rob Liefeld? <laughs> <laughs> I found out, though. I, I, I'm up to speed now. And what you said, Michael, it sounds exactly right. Uh, this guy... Like, I, like, as I was listening to it, I, like, I don't really know the players really very well. I, I don't know if Rob Liefeld's uh, beefs are, are appropriate or not. I don't know what Wizard did back in the day. But listening to his rant, it just sounded like what you said. It sounded like sour grapes. It sounded like, why are you still talking about this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so I... It made me think that uh, it was one-sided, and I don't know uh, his reputation uh, as a collaborator uh, on things, but I got the sense that maybe it's not great. I don't know if people enjoy working with him or not. Like, my sense from listening to him for five minutes was, I don't think I'd enjoy working with this fellow. (laughs) (laughs) He is very divisive in the comics community and has been for many decades. Mm -hmm. He seems to thrive on it. He hasn't really worked on a book in a long time. Well, that's not true. He he just released a G.I. Joe Storm Shadow miniseries that is selling very well, and he will tell you that over and over again. (laughs) So he still works, but here's the thing. So finally hearing Rob mention Wizard on his podcast, I got excited and I posted it to our Twitter feed so everyone could listen. And soon, our past guest from the Wizard Files interview series, Chris Ward, aka Loose Cannon, earned his name by calling out Rob for his statement that Pat, Brian, and Jim, for those who don't know, Pat McCallum, Brian Cunningham, and Jim McLaughlin, quote, drove Wizard into the ground okay so chris ward jumped in and he says i'll say this pat did not run the magazine into the ground garib and steven did he goes on to say also imagine feeling like you were victimized by a magazine and becoming a millionaire anyway with your creations and getting to the very top and still holding a petty grudge like this i say this as someone who wrote an entire album to get under garib's skin therapy works <laughs> then rob responded you're a loser move on with your life <laughs> but yet rob can't move on apparently yeah yeah that's that's can't still follow funny. his own advice here and so uh, it went on from there. there there were other members of the wizard staff who decided to chime in right and so i thought that i could somehow uh 
bring some facts into this because Rob always claims to stand by facts on his podcast. This is a fact. People have all their opinions. This is a fact. So I posted a masthead from a 2011 issue of Wizard, which is the last year it was published. And it showed that Pat, Brian, and Jim were no longer with the magazine. They weren't there to go down with the ship, you know? (laughs) And this made him explode in anger. He was so mad. So he comes here, before I block you for good, are you effing kidding me? So are you asserting there were no pats in its history? What a dipshit response. (laughs) And so I tried to respond to this. Before I block you forever, is he ready for a response? Unfortunately not, okay? Because... I was trying to reply that I was merely responding to his claim that they drove it to the ground, but they weren't there to drive it into the ground. I kept trying to respond. I'm like, it's not going through. And then I was like, oh, we've been blocked. So because I could no longer see Rob's tweets, that he continued to rant against us. And the crazy thing is, my initial post about Rob's podcast stated, quote, we're not apologists for Wizard Magazine and that everyone should hear both sides. So we were technically inviting people to consider Rob's opinion as possibly factual so he went on to post about us after the fact and this fired up our friend mickey from the retro network who then provided a rant of his own on their after hours podcast which has no censor we have censored it for sensitive ears but uh take a listen nope i got one more thing to say Uh for people who don't follow along on Twitter with the various different accounts of the network users. The Twitter account for Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, got involved in a little conversation with famous comics creator Rob Liefeld. And he was running down Wizard Magazine and naming off some different people who led to their demise, really running them down, Mm -hmm. which ticked me off for one thing. Then Adam and Michael at Wizards, sent him a picture of a masthead showing that the person he was blaming for the demise of wizard wasn't there working at wizard at that time to which Rob Liefeld got pissed off that he kind of lost that argument and blocked the wizards account. But he didn't stop there after he blocked them where he couldn't see it. He referred to them as dit. So I heard about this and it ran all over me because if you're going to talk about somebody, talk about them to their face, this, that, and the other yeah, thing. No if, you're, if you're a friend of mine and you're not around to defend yourself, I'm going to defend you myself. So Rob Liefeld, for one, I don't understand why he was running down Wizard Magazine. The only reason he made millions of dollars, he was talented, but he made millions of dollars off Wizard pimping his ass month in and month out and telling people highly impressionable people to go out and buy his shitty artwork. So I don't know why he would want to run them down in the first place. And also, Michael and Adam are nice guys. Michael and Adam are not the kind of guys who would go on Kickstarter and raise $35,000 for a Project 7 years ago and still not deliver on it and just keep all the damn money like Rob Longfield did. Wow. And like I said, that Michael and Adam are nice guys. They're too nice to say this, but I'm sure as hell not. So fuck you, Rob Liefeld. Don't be talking about Michael and Adam, especially after you block them. You want to say that to them, say it to them. They're big boys. They'll defend themselves, but you've done it behind their back where they couldn't defend themselves, so I'll say it. Fuck you and fuck off, Rob Liefeld. Okay, now I'm done. (laughs) I wish I knew where Rob Liefeld was because I'd go have a conversation with him. One of us could go to the hospital and one of us could go to jail and I could help him sort out which was going to be which. Well, it's obvious that he, you know, he had no clue what they've been doing with the podcast. I mean, they're the farthest from being one of those trolls on Twitter that just loves to poke people, you know. 
it is what it is. And maybe he's just used to all the trolls and blocking everybody that pisses him off. But I agree. If you're going to engage somebody, do it while they can still see what you're talking about and not, you know, behind their backs. That's ridiculous. Well, he was talking about the Wizards podcast account, which Adam and Michael run. And he called them dits who worshipped wizard after he blocked them. Rob Liefeld can suck a dick. He has no clue that they're doing the hype machine and all that stuff and see how much they, he was getting hyped back then. You're right. I mean, I don't, how you can't be grateful for something that plugged you for a decade or more is beyond me. Well, know. he went on after he blocked them to explain how people in the industry always hated Wizard and he always hated them and shit. And I'm thinking, you're a damn liar. You made more money off of Wizard than anybody in the comic book industry. I mean, come on. He can be mad at Wizard all he wants to, but don't block somebody, especially nice guys, who at Rob's advanced age, Adam and Michael do as much to hype him now as Wizard did then. They done him a favor without intended to, and for him to turn around and call them dip shits with no point of reference to it, and especially behind their back, is a cheap-ass move of Rob Liefeld. Low blow. So I will just say, we really appreciate Mickey having our backs. Uh, Threats of violence we do not endorse, but he makes a valid point that Rob certainly benefited financially from coverage he got at Wizard more than his reputation was ever damaged by any later opinion pieces written about him. Not to mention the fact, guys, that Robservations was the name of a column he was given in Wizard Magazine for many (laughs) issues. Wow. So he's railing (laughs) against the editorial staff of a defunct magazine that gave his podcast its name it is insanity and i thought the point was excellent and obviously very colorfully told that yeah (laughs) this magazine is at least in part responsible for your rise to superstardom i mean i look at it like this you know prior to issue 20 the man has been mentioned in our podcast that that adam has counted his name a hundred and 17 some odd times i'm like oh my gosh in 19 issues like that's crazy first of all thanks to everyone who gave your support in the wake of our being blocked it was a very trying time uh even going so far as to unfollow rob and unsubscribe from his podcast in solidarity we feel ya. we appreciate it his attitude is unfortunate but hilariously there was a liefeld diehard who came after us Tell me about this. I need to know this. Yeah. So he says, his facts are the right facts, not someone else making up stuff and then later claiming they have the right information about his work or him when they're just making up stuff to simply fill space. So many people bash him and are negative towards him. More positivity, people. (laughs) More positivity. Yeah. It's just funny because it's his comics idol who created all the bad vibes to begin with. (laughs) And it didn't have the guts to discuss the facts being represented before cutting off the possibility of coming to a mutual understanding, which is what I was hoping for. But really, guys, the saddest part for all of you listeners is that we actually had an in from a past guest on the Wizard Files to get Rob for an interview. And see, I grew up in Orange County, right next to Rob, spent so much time in Anaheim and Fullerton where he was located growing up and for his work. I shopped at the comic book store in Tustin where he used to work. Now, I don't particularly care for Rob's work in comics, right? I don't like his art. I, I don't enjoy it. But as a kid, I did visit his Extreme Studios offices in Anaheim, as I've mentioned in the past, and I had hoped to connect with him as one comics-loving SoCal kid to another. And so, again, also, I don't hold it against 
anyone who is a fan of Rob Liefeld's comics work. He was a seminal part of comics history in the 90s. He created lasting Marvel characters in Deadpool and Cable who are incredibly popular, which is more than any of his image cohorts can say. I mean, if you look at their legacies, their legacies are working on established characters. They went on and created characters, but none of them are as big as Spider-Man or the X-Men or whoever they worked on. So now Rob is not a creator you can count on to keep a creator-owned title going for any length of time before he jumps to a new project or just never produces it. But every couple of years when he does produce a miniseries for a big publisher, people buy it and it makes money. Uh, You know, he is an event guy. Frankly, all that said, I'm just enjoying the comedy that we can mine from our non-existent feud with Rob. And I'm sure he's already forgotten about our dipshit podcast. (laughs) But as Mr. Liefeld has taught us over the years, any hype is good hype and we're going to milk it. I mean, I've lost all of one minute of sleep over this whole issue. (laughs) (laughs) But most ironic of all is that despite the large chasm that has opened between our show and Rob, this is a Liefeld-heavy issue of Wizard. Oh, (laughs) wonderful. There's so much Liefeld news, so it's time to get into it. But uh, before we do that, I think uh, somebody else was getting a little riled up in the pages of Magic Words. Andrew Rogers of Guelph, Ontario, Canada says, Dear Wizard, Okay, that's it. I've had enough. I've had enough of your magazine giving DC Comics the shaft issue after issue. For starters, this is the second consecutive issue that has not included one single DC-related news item in the Wizard News section. Where were the memos regarding Superman's death, the ultra-hot related trading card set, Tim Truman's return to Hawkworld, Earth's destruction in Legion, which was covered in USA Today, but not Wizard, Sam Keith's Batman covers, DC's revival of Showcase? Are you suggesting that toy zen intergalactic ninjas were more newsworthy issue 16 than anything published by dc comics get real i must also take exception to issue 17's wizard market watch column to which no writer is given a byline or i would direct my comments to the writer specifically Uh, the very idea that superman number 75 will fall on its face is a joke that book may not hold a record for the largest print run but let's turn our attention to the book that does x-men number one i have not gone into a single comic shop in the last year and a half and not found multiple, no pun intended, copies of X-Men number one selling for cover price. Your own price guide lists these books for $2, $3 for the deluxe edition. Even the Batman series that you paralleled the recent Death of Superman craze with still sells for well above cover, so just whose gimmick has collapsed in the long run? Funny, in all fairness, in the issues that I've read, no mention of this in your magazine. DC has done what no other company has done, and they do it repeatedly. Bring internet national mainstream media focus to the comic book industry. Remember Superman's engagement to Lois Lane? The death and rebirth of Robin and the blockbuster Batman films? This could only help the industry on the whole as it continues to fight for artistic legitimacy in certain circles. For this, DC deserved thanks from the industry and a fair shake from its own media. So, just real quick, before Rob reads the response, this makes me think of that, like, meme of a cat in front of a keyboard, like, just (laughs) typing feverishly. (laughs) That's what I feel. Oh! <laughs> All right, Rob, what did Wizard have to say? 
Our DC coverage, as you can see by this issue, has greatly increased. As for your Market Watch comments, the writer in question is me. Reread it, Mr. Rogers. It deals with the inflated price Superman number 75 was selling for, which indeed has, quote, fallen on its face, end quote, compared to its one-time selling price. When it was first released, some stores capitalized on the media blitzkrieg and were charging $100 and more and getting it like it was going out of style. Now, after the hype has subsided a bit, the price has stabilized around $25. The Market Watch editorial was geared to warn of this event so fans wouldn't get burned with the inflated and temporary price. As for your closing comments, I agree 100%. So have a beautiful day in your neighborhood, Mr. Rogers, and get the hell out of mine. <laughs> I, uh, I embellished a little bit at the end there. <laughs> From now on, we're going to have Rob read all the responses. That was fantastic. That made my night right there. That was Just wonderful. for veracity's sake, though, the listeners, uh, they didn't say the thing at the end about the beautiful day in the neighborhood. I just want to make sure that's clear. Now, not yet. That's something they would add probably in you know 10 to 15 more issues. They get a little more snarky. For the listener who's reading along at home, is like, where the hell? That doesn't say that. It's not fair. <laughs> But I will say that we were addressed on social media by our past guest at Masked Library, Kevin Hellions, who also says, like, somebody definitely paid off Wizard not to mention DC. I just can't see it any other way. But yeah, I mean, there it was sparse, sort of. But at the same time, I feel like they've had enough. There's just been more coverage of Marvel and Image, you know, overall. But it's, it's not like DC was invisible to them. I mean, they've always had some mention and focus or an article or whatever it was that had, you know, plenty of, of DC in there over the issues. It's just, yeah, they always say we're covering what's hot and what's hot is Image and Marvel. That's what everybody cares about, you know? Mm-hmm. So They do cover a lot of the DC potential movies, but when it comes to the actual comics, it's, it's very few and far between. I mean... Hey, they talked about Dark Stars. They oh, did that. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. They covered Eclipso. They did How their soon part. I forget, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, like, uh, you know, other than the cover for Super- the death of Superman, the last cover I can recall that there was a DC cover was number seven with the Flash. Right, because they had Batman on four and then the Flash on seven. Yeah. Oh, so. I did get that right on the quiz. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, that is something that we will determine as the issues go on. Is DC going to get more or less coverage? And I think they're uh, they're going to have their name mean something uh, a little bit more in the industry as we go on. But, Michael, let's go back to 1993. Let's rev up the Wave Riders Wayback Machine. And this is April of 1993. So there's a handful of really, really great movies that came out this month. And I remember seeing all but one in the theater at the time, but I did see one of the four that we're going to mention tonight on VHS afterwards. I'm going to dive in first with Cop and a Half on April 2nd, starring Burt Reynolds. And I used to love this movie. This was like a real buddy cop kind of time period where they had like Turner and Hooch 
and K9 and Cop and a Half. Then they have like, wasn't there a movie with like uh, Hulk Hogan and a cop and with that at some point? I don't know about that one. He was Mister Nanny. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe that's what I think. But like for me, Cop and a Half, all I remember is Burt Reynolds took off his toupee for the first time ever in a movie as a joke, and that was like the big news about the movie. I still haven't seen it to this day, but I remember that there was a lot of coverage. <laughs> oh, it's a great movie. They have one of the best lines in any movie I've ever seen. It's him and the little kid that he's protecting, and they're in the bathroom, and they both have to go pee, and the kid goes, want to play swords? it is the best the best line ever i love that line. our female (laughs) listeners all one of you possibly hi karen may not get that but uh, every young man knows swords that is for sure so the next movie we're going to talk about is a movie called the crush with alicia silverstone and this was one of those movies that kind of almost horror, but not horror, suspense kind of thing. It was like a big deal because it also coincided with one of the music albums that came out that same month, which we'll talk about in a minute, and we'll kind of go back to both of those things. The next one I'm going to talk about is The Sandlot. And every single kid who saw The Sandlot after that movie... They called all their buddies, and they went to their local elementary school and were playing baseball to see if they could hit home runs over their the fence at the, at the elementary schools or, or middle schools and see if they were dogs that would be jumping out there as well. Oh, is that what you did? I, I, I went to the public pool looking for Wendy Peppercorn. Oh, that's a good <laughs> But I, I looked at that as like, oh, it's a different time period. And it, you know, you're not going to see a Wendy Peppercorn when you're 9 or 10 years old at that time, but the baseball thing was fun for me. Rob, I'm curious for you because you're a couple years older than us is the sandlot hold any nostalgic meaning for you i am about to make a confession and that confession is once you have finished reading all four of these movies i am over four on these movies <laughs> i have not seen one of these four movies and the one that bothers me the most that i haven't seen because it really does seem beloved and it's come back as memes and everything is the sandlot i've never seen it you're killing me smalls you're killing exactly <laughs> Um, so the last one is one that I know that Adam has an interesting story about is Sidekicks, which came out on April 9th. You assume too much, but we do have Joe Piscopo in that movie. Oh, I was thinking of Surf Ninjas for a second. Yeah, I wish. (laughs) Well, so here's the weird connection that Ernie Reyes Jr., who is the star of Surf Ninjas, had a TV series called sidekicks in the 80s when he was young and this movie is totally unrelated to that tv series <laughs> but the tv series is related to surf ninjas in that they mentioned patusan on that series is my understanding really jonathan brandis and chuck norris teaming up to fight joe piscopo i mean right. I, what more do you oh. need it's Jonathan Brandis and Chuck Norris. I remember that movie because doesn't like Jonathan Brandis have like all these dreams yeah. about being Chuck Norris, and he like he, they, they like stage the biggest scenes in like Delta Force and all that stuff in this movie. But Jonathan Brandis is playing the Chuck Norris. Yeah, role. he's like his sidekick in all of them. Yes. Yeah, that's head sidekicks. There yeah. you go. Oh, that was a cool movie too. I like that movie. Wow, I want to rewatch that now. That's pretty funny. So as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to music, the movie The Crush tied directly into Aerosmith's Get a Grip featuring Living on the Edge 
And as we spoke of with Alicia Silverstone, Crying and Crazy, which she appeared in both of those music videos, and that album dropped on April 20th. This was actually, for me, probably my truest first real foray into listening to Aerosmith. I knew of their earlier songs, but this album, because it was everywhere on MTV, you couldn't turn it off without seeing these videos pop up. Like It was my like real introduction into Aerosmith. Yeah, it's crazy how much longevity Aerosmith has had. They were huge in the 70s, then they were huge in the 80s, and then they were seemed even bigger in the 90s. Like yeah. I almost equate them being a 90s kid as a 90s band. Right, yeah, that's a good point. My first concert I ever went to was Aerosmith. Oh. They opened up at Jones Beach, and the uh, opening band is a band called Fuel, which was my all-time favorite band because of that concert. Oh. But, but yeah, Aerosmith was my first, first concert, and a lot of it was because of this album. I was so hooked to it as a kid. Obviously, like you said, those videos with Alicia Silverstone, I mean, everybody's like, it's the Aerosmith girl! You know, she did yeah. three of them total, and in all of them, she's just like the hottest girl ever. If you're a 10-year-old, you know, 12-year-old kid, you're <laughs> like, I can't believe it! Where'd they find this girl? Yeah, exactly. And then she shows up in Clueless, and you're like, that's it. Uh, she, uh, She's not a bad girl, she's a nice girl, she covers everything. We love her! Then she's Batgirl. Yeah, yeah we just... We, we, we recently talked about that on the After Lunch podcast, a little yes. plug there. For those of you who are curious about their opinions of the Schumacher Batman <laughs> films, go ahead and oh, check I, that I out. That, I don't want to go too far off topic, but she wasn't the problem in that movie. The no, writing of the problem with that movie. Yeah. I think she, if she had the right dialogue, would have been great in that movie, personally. Yeah, the dialogue was a, a big issue. Well, anyway... That is our Wave Riders Wayback Machine for April of 1993. So, Adam, what do you got in our table of contents today? Oh, guys, I got to tell you, I am excited. This is, like, honestly, like, the best issue of Wizard we've covered up to this point. I mean, it is so jam-packed with interesting, interesting features. But we start off with a cover by Sam Keith featuring The Max. And this is the character's second cover appearance within a six-month span. Like, it is crazy. He was part of a Darker Image mashup cover that they did earlier. Uh, but I'm curious, Rob, Michael... Obviously, you've said that you weren't seeking out the Max comics, but did you watch them on MTV? I did watch the Max show on MTV a little bit because it was kind of like around the same time of Beavis and Butthead and like <laughs> Eon Flux and those kind of things. And it was like, these are cartoons, but they're kind of adult and edgy. But like my mom and dad says, what do you want? Oh, I'm watching cartoons, mom. It's great. Yeah, no <laughs> Does the Max ring a bell for you, Rob? So my way into Sam Keith is through Neil Gaiman, and that's about it. So, uh, oh, I, Sandman, huh? Yes, exactly. So I, I, I really liked his work on the Sandman. But like I said kind of at the top, like I didn't do a lot of exploring beyond the Marvel and the DC. Well, he did a lot of Marvel Comics Presents, so I was yes. curious. And I actually didn't see those because I think, again, at the, at the top, I was, you know, I was very limited in what I was buying. I could probably read them now on Marvel Unlimited, but at the time I was just kind of getting, oh, I got to get the next Amazing Spider-Man. I got to get the next Daredevil or whatever. But I, so something like that would come out and I'd be like, oh, that's probably interesting. But I didn't pick it up just based on my limited funds. But I'll, I'll say this, to this day, I do not know who or what the Max is or, <laughs> or, or what he does or what he's about. Well, the good anything. news is, Rob, neither does he. 
Uh, he's an amnesiac. He goes in and out of fantasy realms. He doesn't know what's going on. Like, I have his debut in Darker Image number one, which shows him in this, like, Australian outback fantasy world battling, like, this giant ogre. Then I have the Max Half issue, which actually isn't offered in Wizard to buy until the next issue, in issue 21. And then I have the first issue of the comic, which I read while listening to the audio drama version, which was released on cassette set tape in the 90s after a few <laughs> issues so they had a full audio drama and it's basically a pilot for the mtv animated series it's really interesting that does sound interesting <laughs> i i just i i picture like 11 year old adam just in his like bedroom with his cd walkman or like his, his sony walkman with his headphones on skimming the book listening intently to this cassette tape <laughs> well, well, that, the uh, untold legend of the batman they did that with those and i have that full series where it was like these untold legend of the batman comics and then they had audio cassettes where they did a whole audio play version of i love that format any comics that want to come to life that way i will grab them and guys i would love to be able to fill you in on the rich history of the Mac, but I myself did not read the comics in the 90s. I flipped through a few issues, but it wasn't anything that I was buying off the rack. And as I've read through the issues that I do have here, as I stated, I mean, really, the first issue is just kind of like a dream sequence, and then you have the Max ending up with the social worker, Julie, and she's kind of his goddess in this other realm that he falls into in his mind, or is it his mind? Uh, and then there's this guy who's out killing people, who's got what Sam Keith refers to as a McFarlane cape, and then uh, you know the Wizard Half comic that I have. It's pretty much just these two kids on the stoop of a brownstone talking about. Oh, I heard that the Max is this. I heard that the Max is that. You know, so it's just kind of a weird story. I don't really get it. The only insight I feel like I got from Sam Keith in this interview is he says that the mask he wears is alive. So he says it is a costume he's wearing, but the mask can bite people's fingers off and i was like huh okay that's an interesting development but yeah if anybody was coming to the episode looking for an in-depth coverage of the max that's really not the focus of this article that wasn't necessarily what we were going for despite the fact that he is the cover feature but those of you who are fans i'm sure you got it all figured out but what's interesting is inside the magazine, the Max is part of what Wizard has dubbed Image, the next generation. So they had a very successful year, you know, with the, the seven founders of Image, except for Wills Portacio did not have wet works come out, but everybody else at least got a book out. However many uh, actually came out on time, that's another <laughs> issue. But along with the Max was a character called Wildstar that was being created by Al Gordon, who was the writer, and Jerry Ordway who was the co-plotter and artist who had been writing at that point Superman since 1986. And he actually had left with the death of Superman's storyline. He's like, this is a perfect time for me to leave Superman. I've been doing it for so long. And he wanted to do more R-rated violence in this book. And so he lets the cat out of the bag in his interview. He's like, Wildstar dies in issue three. Oh. And it's only a four-issue series. <laughs> 
And so today, I was so lucky, I was able to kind of go out, I had to run some errands. I managed to stop into an antique store that had a whole bunch of comics, and I picked up Wildstar number three. It was $3.50, which is probably $3 more than I should have spent. <laughs> and I read it, because I had to know, how does he die? Guess who was on the cover alongside Wildstar, another image hero, one of the founding launch books, and he's very green. The Savage Dragon. Yes. Oh, look at me making an image <laughs> reference. <laughs> you beat me. To, I, I was like, I don't know. Screen. I was like, uh, uh I forgot already. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are aware, but Savage Dragon is the most pimped out character ever. Like if, if you call Eric Larson and you say like, hey, I'm drawing a sketch in the back of my high school biology class. Can I put Savage Dragon in there? He's like, yeah, sure. Go for it. <laughs> so many books where he is the guest star. It is crazy. But anyway, Wildstar does die, but there's a whole time travel element to this where the Wildstar who dies hmm, is from the future, but he's protecting his 90s younger self, so he's able to transfer the power to the younger version of himself, so he dies, but he's reborn instantly. Nice. Very comics. clever. Yes, <laughs> comics. But I, I really enjoyed it, actually. Very nicely done comics. So if you're ever at a quarter bin and you see Wildstar, hey, it's like a movie. You just pick it up. I turned on the Broken Arrow soundtrack. Yeah, anybody remember that movie? <laughs> and then I just listened what? to it. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> the Broken Arrow soundtrack. Oh, well, my All God. the fighting in the issue is taking place out in the desert. And I'm like, Broken Arrow, the, all the action was in the desert, right? And it worked perfectly. A hot Zimmer score. Uh, Adam, you never, ever cease to amaze me. <laughs> Every time there's something new. I'm like, first of all, the antique store that you have is the most amazing place I've ever seen. I couldn't find some of the stuff that you come up with in a hundred years and you find it at, like, little antique stores all over the place. It blows my mind. It really does. I have retro radar, that is for sure. You sure do. <laughs> now, uh, also in the mix is Larry Stroman's new book, Tribe. You guys might know Larry Stroman from X Factor. He was on there just before jumping over to Image now. And he is claiming he's going to introduce more than 200 new superheroes <laughs> during the run on this book. Names like a Blind Spot, Shift, Fly Girl, and Short Order. And we thought Liefeld went overkill on new character creation. Yeah. 200. Yeah, I just want to throw in, uh, I really thought some of those characters like could have become classics. You remember Rugburn and uh, <laughs> Laser Knees? And, and, and Tochis? Right, yeah. Oh, Speedometer. Uh, just Skidmark. Oh, there were so many just uh, fantastic characters. I, I don't know why they didn't become classics. Oh, man, they missed the boat, I guess. It's bad marketing. <laughs> No social media back then. <laughs> that must be it. Yeah, so you know, there were other books that Liefeld was putting out. You know, he's doing Brigade and Bloodstrike and all these. You know, he's like, I got Blood new characters, Strike. guys. I got new ones. They all look like Cable. Check them out. <laughs> they all look like Cable. Oh, uh, but it was interesting is that Liefeld, the one thing he does say, though, he's like, look, I understand our books have not been getting out on time. So what's the solution? I'm drawing less books and handing them over to other people. So I'm just creating ideas and other people you've never heard of are going to draw the books. <laughs> Buy them. <laughs> I know Image is still around today. How did they make it out of the first two years? Like, I just don't get it. They can't get books out on time. They're basically copycatting other characters in a lot of cases. I just can't 
wrap my head around it. It's like, this is the most fascinating part of this whole expedition we're on. It's like, how did they survive? Well, again, it's just you have to understand. I mean, when they're selling millions of copies at Marvel, people literally just drank the Kool-Aid and they're like, yes, I will follow you anywhere. Whatever you produce with your name on it, I will buy because I want to have something as great as X-Force again, you know? Mm -hmm. I need something as great as X-Men number one that just diminishing returns over and over again. All right, but moving off of Image, Palmer's Picks. This is, again, this is a section usually dealing with indie books and we don't know so much about indie books we cover it less but also the letter from the editor as well in this issue they kind of had a synergy they were focused on comics writer and artist scott mcleod who had just produced a book called understanding comics which breaks down the art form in kind of an illustrated comic book format but with an academic style focus now i remember this being a very big deal back in the day and being at barnes and noble and places like that have you guys ever read this book have you heard of this book Nope. I, I'll jump in. I haven't, but it sounds interesting. I, I, I think it's something I would like to read, but if I'm being honest, it's probably it's probably something that I would put on my list of things that I should read, but then I'll never, you know, get around to it and then I'll <laughs> Just keep reading comic books like some kind of ignorant slob, I guess. Just, it, it, <laughs> it, it's one of those books that if I did see it at a Barnes Noble, when we can actually go to a Barnes Noble again at some point, <laughs> you know, I, I would look at it. I may pick it up if I could find it on like a discount bin and it will sit on my shelf for the next 25 years and i'll be like oh yeah i'm le- i'm reading it through osmosis when i put my hand on it i'm getting the pages because i probably won't open the cover but I- i'm sure it is interesting yeah wh- what it is is it's the book that a college student gives to their literary studies professor and says comics <laughs> are a legitimate art form look yeah, at this like, like that's what it's for it's in a it's in a reference library somewhere and somebody looking for you know to add credibility to their hobby of people in spandex punching each other so <laughs> that's that's what it's for. Um, now, there is a small news item and a full-color ad for an event called Dark Horse Comics Greatest World event, which will be a 16-book series of one-shots, one released each week at $1 a piece. And it says they all tie into a singular event in this universe by the end. Uh, but listen to the list of uh, powerhouses they have. Frank Miller, George Perez, Walt Simonson, Art Adams, Jerry Ordway, Adam Hughes, Jimmy Paviotti, and so many more are involved in producing these books. It, it's it's like they said, hey, do you have an idea you've always wanted to do but nobody would publish? We'll publish it. <laughs> and then uh, you, they put it out there. And so um, of these 16 the only ones that go on to any type of acclaim that i recall are ghost by adam hughes x which i remember getting a lot of critical acclaim and of course barb wire because why michael pamela anderson baby (laughs) (laughs) don't call me babe (laughs) that classic post-apocalyptic movie that she made yeah, oh, I mean, boy. the rest went on to fill up many a quarter bid to this day. Yeah. I bought a couple just for research. This will be covered in greater detail down the line, but I'm sure anybody who has seen the banner of Comics Greatest World is like, oh yeah, those books. <laughs> not, almost none of them went on to be any type of continuing series. I feel like, Adam, you'll know this answer. Did Tank Girl come out of this as well? Or no, because no? she was a British comic initially. So she, she existed, yeah, not just in Dark Horse. I think later she was published by Dark Horse, but she didn't start there. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So now moving into video games, we have the At the Controls feature with Glenn Rubenstein. Oh, this guy. This guy. 
Yeah, that guy again. You remember Bubsy, Michael? Oh yeah, Bubsy the Bobcat. Can't can't. <laughs> well, luckily this time around, he is actually talking about comic book related video games. The first of which is an X Men game for the Sega Genesis. Michael, did you ever play this game? I I do know it. I didn't own it, but one of my friends did. I think I played it maybe once or twice. It was fine. It was one of those games where Wolverine was very underpowered because the claws are very small, and Cyclops was very overpowered at that time. This is like, his blast was like, tremendous. <laughs> also in the mix, though, more exciting to me, is a Superman game by Sunsoft. Now, Rob, I don't know, did you spend much time in arcades? Did you ever see this Superman arcade game that they were porting to the home consoles? I saw this game, and I played it, and it wasn't in an arcade. It was in a convenience store down the street from my house and they had this game in there and so I didn't I didn't have a ton of money so I'd go in there and I'd plunk a quarter in and I'd play it for about uh you know 15 seconds and I'd die uh and <laughs> and, like, and so I never got very far but uh I remember it and I remember liking it but I remember being frustrated that Superman seemed to have a selective use of his powers let's say there were, <laughs> there were plenty of Superman powers where you're like well he's Superman can he just oh I died oh what did he just use his oh it's too late I'm over. it's over so yeah I do remember it and I remember playing it for a little bit but I, I didn't play it on the Sega Genesis we had a, a bowling alley near where I lived and I was in like a bowling league and we would try to race through our games to go to the little mini arcade inside the bowling alley. And this Superman game was there, and I would play it all the time. But I, too, within 10 seconds, dead. But I'm like, he's got heat vision. Why is he? What? what like, <laughs> he can it's fly. A, Why is this not working? It's a Superman thing for me that in uh, other media, too, like even great shows, like his own show, like the, the 90s cartoon and then the Justice League cartoon, you'd be like, he's Superman. Did he forget that he had, you know, freezing cold breath? Did he forget that he had heat vision? The writers sure did. Yeah, I think that's it, yeah. Michael, it's crazy to hear you say Bowling Alley, because that is where I played it also. Ah, And most exciting to me about that game was that it had a two-player mode, so there was Superman Red and Superman Blue. Blue, that's right. And I played, I had, one of my first comics I ever got was a Superman special that was the story of Superman Blue and Superman Red, where he got separated. So yeah, so that was very exciting to me. I was like, they turned it into a video game! (laughs) Now, it's not the one where the... Superman blue and red where he's like lightning and whatever. It's the no, no, old, this is early. The, this the is like early 80s. One. Yeah, yeah, where, where it's like, yeah, where he still has the capes and everything. Yeah, okay, that's better <laughs> than the later, oh, when I'm Clark Kent, I have no powers, but when I become Superman... I'm either all blue or all red. Yeah, that was a that was a miss, DC. I'll, have, I'll say that one. Yeah, now, getting off of video games, here's the thing. I already have an issue with Wizard covering video games, covering role-playing games. When they get off topic, I'm a little confused why they're filling space. But this is an affront to everything. (laughs) They have this thing in here called Look Familiar, and it is pictures of animals. There is a horse, there is a dog, there is a cat, there is a parakeet named Pepper. And they say here, think your dog is the cutest thing ever to take a dump on a Persian rug? Or maybe that your cat is the sweetest thing ever to mate with your sister's sweater? Could be. Send in the cutest, funniest, weirdest photos of your pet, and we'll print the best ones here. What? 
what like i don't understand what in the world like why like i, I if this was now I understand you put a cat in anything, you get a million views. You know what I'm saying? Like, cat culture on the internet is a big deal. But in your comics magazine in 1993? I I, I have a theory behind that. So, most of the issues have around 189 page count, right? Give or take. And I bet they were wondering if there's going to be certain issues where they're not going to be able to fill pages <laughs> to, to hit that page count. And so they have to be like, oh, we're going to have just stuff kind of like in the can that they could throw in there if they need to. That's my theory. It's very possible. And what they say is if you spot your little critter here, write us at the address above and send in your pet's name along with what issue you spotted him in. If you do, we'll send you and your pet some cheap gift or something. But just think, he'll be famous. <laughs> I was just like this. I If this comes up in a future issue, okay, I will eat a copy of X-Force number one polybag and all. <laughs> I don't know what is going on, where their heads are at. There's no way anybody sent in pictures of their pets. I mean, at least you would say, like, put your pet in a superhero costume I, or something. I, I don't know. That's what I was going to say. I mean, the letters section leads me to believe that we will see <laughs> some cats in this in this magazine at some point. And I really believe that it's going to happen. I'm looking forward to it because if you have to eat a comic book, I'm going to say, I told you. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Got to get my barbecue sauce ready. You nearly passed out when we tried to smell some old comics, so eat one. You might be in real trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I'll eat my words. All right. Moving on here, though, there's an interesting article. They have this old guy who writes these articles who's been collecting since, like, the late 30s, early 40s, and he is explaining how the direct market for comic book back issues emerged and how the beginning of the fan press really started and started influencing letters pages of comics. And it's crazy to me because we are so spoiled having grown up in the 80s and 90s where a comic book store was a place you could go, oh, I like this character now? I want to go get a full run of Flash comics. Well, you couldn't do that back in the 40s and the 50s (laughs) and the 60s. Like There wasn't a place to buy comics because they were on a rack the five and dime or something like that yeah. yeah you bought them at the store you threw them away or you kept them in a box but you never knew who else was reading them and there was no place to go get the previous issue because what did the retailers do they ripped the cover off of books and sent them in to the publisher and said hey the, this many copies didn't sell and give me a credit back but what happened was that um, fans started writing letters to the publishers and dc especially started having letters pages in their books and people were exchanging information talking about oh in this issue remember this happened so there started to be this interest in back issues and uh, to the point of like they had such influence that fans were forcing dc to put superman and batman into their new justice league of america comic because they originally didn't want them in it early on they were not yeah yeah and so uh what ultimately what happened though is because of that desire this genius named phil suling contacts dc and marvel about their back issue stock and he's like hey sell it to me at a discount price if you're just gonna trash it and i'll pay you and then i'll resell it so like he created this business of buying back issues that eventually morphed into let's put all the back issues in a store where you can go browse them and buy them 
That's awesome. That's a, that, this is really a, a an instance of the customer being always right kind of a thing. Like just even the the readers going, uh, "Hey guys, you've got this uh, premier superhero team. Hey, I know who you should put on that team." <laughs> like that just it just makes sense. And the fact that they pressured him into it, I think that's a, that was a that was a good move. <laughs> it's weird later on, like when Brian Michael Bendis was like, "Oh, we'll put Wolverine and Spider Man on the Avengers because they're popular." That one, I was like, "No, you can't do that." <laughs> but but back, you know, with this Justice League move. I'm like, yeah, that's I'm all about that one. That makes sense to me. Now, I uh, have a question for you guys. John Ramita Jr. Fans? He worked on your Spidey books, Rob. Uh, I will say yes, not only fan, uh, but if I had to choose my favorite era of Spider-Man, I would go with the Roger Stern, John Ramita Jr. era. And it's it's that particular style he had at the time that was, I don't know, a little more real than his father style, who I also adore, John Romita Sr., but a little, he wasn't in the the style that he got later, where it was kind of sketchier, uh, mm-hmm. like he kind of made Spider-Man skinnier, and that stuff. I still like those books as well, but the sweet spot for me is the, the Roger Stern, John Romita Jr. era for Spidey. Like, I think Spidey looked great. I really like the storytelling there, so I, I would put myself as a fan. As he has gone on i don't know if he's drawing quicker <laughs> just to, to get through things but i have some issues with some of his later work but uh that at that point boy i was in the zone how about you michael you familiar with mr jrjr not only am i familiar i've met him oh oh that's cool fourth world comics here on long island gets him to come in every once in a while and he was doing a run on batman at one point i forget what it was for but it was like a a Batman story with him and Two-Face, and uh, they were kids. It was weird. But he came in, he drew actually a picture on their door in the comic book shop. I met him, I said hello and chatted with him. I, too, liked his stuff in the 90s. Now, I can honestly say I don't like his current style. It looks messy. Yeah. And... And I, it bums me out because he's so iconic in the stuff that he did in the 90s. And now the stuff that he does for the most part, not all the time, but like all of his Batman stuff he did about two, three years ago. It looks like it was just doodled on a napkin. And he's like, yeah, that's good. There you go. I, that, that's that's exact. You said it just right for at least for how I look at it as well. Just one more quick thing is later in life, whenever he has to draw a child in a comic book. Oh, forget it. They're like a walking candy apple. Like they've just got this huge head. Yeah. It's just really weird. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Because so this this thing that he was doing with Batman and Two-Face, it was them as children, Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent as children in like a, a halfway house kind of a thing for kids who had like lost their parents or whatever. And the way he drew them as boys, I was like, <laughs> what on earth is this? <laughs> the bodies were all misproportioned. Yes. Sometimes the heads were too big, sometimes they were too small. To like I couldn't even get through it. It was so, it was a three issue thing. It took me about three months to read it. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, like he is for me. I put him with Rob Liefeld. He has a distinct style. 
that I hate. Uh, so so it's just like, I don't like it. It's not pretty. I don't like looking at it. Like you said, all the hatching and all the, the, yeah. the blockiness of his figures and everything. Oh. Like Even like I remember when there was the anti-Venom storyline going on yes. in Spider-Man. I was like, that's a cool idea. Oh, John Romita Jr. is <laughs> drawing it. I won't be picking that up. But what's interesting, though, is right now in this magazine, he's being interviewed explaining he has paid his dues over 15 years in the industry developing a signature style and he starts throwing some shade on these hot new artists who are immediately selling all these books without learning the finer points of storytelling so he says quote it's all a mirage all these people who think they're giants people forget that the comic character is 60% of sales the character is what sells the book and then he goes on to say artists that absolutely blow me away find that they cannot sell a comic and artists with no talent as far as I'm concerned are selling millions so wow take that image chime in there for a minute (laughs) so do you really have to make your way in the industry when your dad is one of the most famous comic book (laughs) artists in the history of comics do you really have to make your way for 15 years or are you just like i am the son of someone people worship like you know john romita jr is up there in the upper echelon of like the kings of comics, you know? Well, like, but if he sucked, if he sucked, it doesn't matter how you know popular your father is. If your comics are no good, you're not going to be revered. And he was. Like you guys said, he did excellent work that people liked. But what he talks about is he then went on to do Punisher Warzone number one because it was a big payday. <laughs> He's like, I never did that before. I did these little runs on other books and fill-in issues or whatever else. I, but he's like, but I felt like I earned the right to do so for once and cash in because the number one issue was going to sell a lot, especially right now. And then now he's slated to draw the Cable miniseries that Rob Liefeld, who created the character, was scheduled for. But of course, now that he's left for Image, he's persona non grata at Uh Marvel. He's taken off the project. And he says here, how did I get on the book? I assassinated Rob Liefeld. (laughs) (laughs) So it's pretty hilarious. But yeah, so it's it's really interesting that he's just like, okay, well, this is my look now. And they say like... he draws the best Punisher. He makes him look like Robert De Niro, Jake LaMotta with his boxer's nose. I can remember his Punisher. And yeah, the boxer's nose is a great description of it. Yeah, he's got that big, like he's like he's been punched in the face a whole bunch of times. So yeah, John Romita Jr. fans unite. Uh, I'm just not one of them. And there are eras that, that our, our hosts here uh, seem to enjoy. But moving on, Wizard has a feature called Four Color Culture. And it's an exploration of diversity in comic books over the years, or mm, the lack thereof. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look back like to the early, early days, they talk about, you know, Wonder Woman was pretty much the only female character that was breaking the mold of a girlfriend or a sexpot villainess, you know, she had her own title, she was the one driving the action, while at this time, most ethnic characters, if you will, were reduced to (laughs) grotesque stereotypes, especially like German, Japanese, and Italian villains during World War II. In those comics, they were like monsters. I mean, it's pretty bad. Mm Mm-hmm. That Marvel started adding black characters to their lineup in the late 60s, right? You had Black Panther, you had the Falcon, you had Black Goliath, but they a lot of them had black in front of their names. Yeah, and they, yeah. they acted as more of a novelty. It's like, oh, look at this. Even if you you look at something like Luke Cage, you know, he's based on black exploitation films, yes, yes. which maybe did not 
provide the best representation of African-American culture in the United States, although they were very popular, you know, at the movies. Say with, like, if you're going to get an Asian character, okay, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. Yes, Kung Fu movies were very big. Let's produce a comic. It sold a lot of copies. But, I mean... Where was their Asian character who was not associated with the martial arts stereotype? Yeah, exactly. Not there. In Marvel Comics, they have the character of Mantis, you know, who we've seen in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. She's Asian, but she's really an alien who was raised in Vietnam. (laughs) And, you know, they talk about how DC started putting more female heroes at the forefront. You know, you had Supergirl, you had Black Canary, Hot Girl was popping up, you know, but maybe not in the most progressive way. I was thinking of, like, DC Comics had Black Lightning. You know, it's one of those things where they didn't know how to name these characters and give them the right representation. But that one issue we talked about last week about the West Coast Avengers had a Latin American hero and it wasn't something stereotypical and it was kind of cool the way they portrayed it. And I mean, obviously, like the all new, all different X-Men of Giant Size X-Men number one, that was a full international team. But they were literally, again, stereotypes based on what country they came from. (laughs) Here's this guy. He's Japanese. They (laughs) have the rising sun on their flag you know oh, man but then at this time now in the 90s you know bishop is a very popular character and they draw no attention to the color of his skin he's from the future that's his deal the one i feel like that dc did right was when you look at the green lantern corps john stewart because oh, yeah. if you talk to anybody now especially since the ryan reynolds green lantern film tanked who is green lantern oh john stewart i saw him in the justice league cartoon yeah, exactly John Stewart is one of those characters that transcends comics in the sense that, like, he's also a soldier, he was a war hero, he's highly intelligent, like, but he's also kind of a little bit damaged in the sense that he's just got, like, this guilt about him, and he's one of my favorite DC Comics characters, and he's was a great replacement for Hal Jordan, at, at, you know, at times and everything, and he's a fantastic diverse character but he's also a legacy character not necessarily a brand new character yeah and uh, you know also you know in the mix if you want to say somebody else i feel that works really well is roadie right war machine yeah like he's another one where in his early appearances not so much when he was in the (laughs) actual iron man armor he was jive talking a lot yeah that's true uh, that is unfortunate also uh for those of you who have listened to the mini episode i covered the jack kirby kirby verse from tops comics bombast comic and in that he has an african-american inner city sidekick that is guiding him into the modern world and yeah the the writing there of his dialogue was embarrassing by (laughs) middle-aged white guys so yeah that's always seemed to be the problem but there is a group or actually two that are looking to change that now in the 90s the first is an afrocentric group that we talked about a couple issues back that is called we were calling them the anIA but according to this article they clarify that Eric Griffin who is the head of anaya is actually an African word meaning to mm. protect and defend which oh, is why cool. they chose that for their banner for their hero 
heroes, but apparently he's got newspaper articles and coverage on CNN before they ever published a comic under the Anaya uh, title. So hence why we reported that they beat Milestone to the punch as far as Afrocentric comics universe goes. But speaking of Milestone, so there is now a full article in here called Making Milestones. It's an interview with Dwayne McDuffie, Derek Dingle, and Dennis Cowan, who lay out their plans for this Dakotaverse, which is named after the city where all their books are being set. Okay, and so it's really interesting because this is probably the most intelligent conversation that's been had in the pages of Wizard up to this point. Like, you see how much care and thought they have put into creating this imprint. So they also clarify, they created these characters and they are handling all the editorial decisions. DC is just handling the distribution and marketing for them. But they created a 400-page Bible of their universe for the four launch titles, including Icon, Hardware, Static, and Blood Syndicate. Mm. But it's really interesting, their point of view, because Dwayne McDuffie says, quote, I don't think it's Marvel or DC's responsibility to provide stories about African-American males. It's an area of interest to me, but it's not their job. It's my job. So I just thought that was a really interesting point of view to have on him. He goes on to say that most of these writers that are white are writing a story based on characters whose culture they understand from movies. So they went and saw Cooley High in movie theaters and it, I, see, I don't know about you but I retain about 20% of any movie that I see so they're taking 20% and now regurgitating that onto the page and saying it represents a race or a culture and he goes on to say here he says one of the big problems with presentation of African American characters is that there are so few that anytime you use one he becomes a symbol he can take no action without it meaning something in the story Cage is not a guy who's a private detective he's quote, black people. And then Dennis mm. Cowan says, he's all black people in comics. And McDuffie says, and that's a crushing weight to work under as a creator. If you want to do a white character, he could be a saint or a sinner or anything in between. And it doesn't mean that all white people, and the wizard says like that you're characterizing all white people by his actions, McDuffie. Right. Wow. Again, just expand your mind. Yeah, you're right. That's a, that sounds like a really excellent interview. I, I just know of Dwayne McDuffie from his writing, and I've always dug his books. So I, I know Damage Control. What else do you guys remember him from? He did, like, you know, they, every once in a while in the Fantastic Four, they come up with a replacement group for them for whatever reason. And he had, it was Black Panther and Storm. And then I think we probably just had two of the, the regular folks there, maybe Johnny and the thing. And, and it was one of those times where, you know, Reed and Sue had to go off and, you know, save their marriage again because because <laughs> everything went poorly. But the way he writes Black Panther and Storm as well, but just the the intelligence of Black Panther, I just I just dig it. I just I love how smart he is and how he's nine steps ahead of everybody. So I really remember him from a run on Justice League after Brad Meltzer finished his run. McDuffie picked up and did a whole long run on DC, maybe about 25 or 30 issues or so. And it was some fantastic stuff, like really interesting stuff, like character-driven stories and less explosions and all kinds of stuff. But it was really, really cool stuff. And I do remember them bringing back the Milestone characters a couple times, in particular in that Justice League run. I like Static Shock from 
the cartoon, but this was my first real like foray into Icon, and I thought that character was so brilliantly crafted, as well as like a you know a counterpart to Superman. It was just very cool. It's good stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I started researching for this episode, I went and bought three of the four Lodge titles because Static is a very big character and his first issue goes for a lot now. So (laughs) I did not have that, but I bought Icon Hardware and Blood Syndicate number one. And they are some very well-crafted comics. But what I find so interesting about them is so if somebody is just giving it a sideways glance, they're going to say, oh, Icon is Black Superman. You know, Hardware is Black Iron man blood syndicate is black x-men you know like if you're if you're really not going to give it its due and yet you get into it you know an icon yes he is an alien from another world who comes down to our world he takes on the form of an african-american man he rises to prominence as a lawyer and then what happens is like there's this girl who sneaks in with her you know financially underprivileged friends and they're gonna rob his mansion and they run into him and they're like hey man you're the butler your boss isn't gonna miss this (laughs) stuff he's so rich and he's like actually it's mine and i want you all to leave and you're just like whoa like you start thinking about you're like those cultural misconceptions right like even within your own race that you would say oh you know i I don't believe that you could accomplish this because of societal stereotypes and yeah like so it'll just hit you with stuff like that it's not drawing a lot of attention to it it's just part of what's happening and yeah what you're saying about mcduffie's writing you're like wow and then hardware is the one i really liked a lot just from the perspective of he's basically like this genius kid who this white businessman takes under his wing and pays for all his schooling and the kid starts developing because he's a genius all these uh, technologies that makes the guy super rich but then when he's an adult the guy who who is hardware comes to his boss essentially who he thought was like his surrogate father and he's basically like hey you know how do i get now some of the income that i've created he's like oh you misunderstand (laughs) this was a business relationship and then he does research and finds out the guy is a crook and he's got all these criminal enterprises so he creates this arbor to go destroy the guy's you know underground illegal activities and so hardware is is kind of my guy bloodson gets on the other side where they're really interesting because they were part of this event in the Dakotaverse called the Big Bang, which was kind of like this riot, and then they shot out tear gas, but it was actually uh, like genetically engineered stuff that killed half the people and gave the other half of the people superpowers. But this group joined together, like kind of in the ghetto area of this city, and what they do is that they'll bust up a crack house, for example, but then they keep the money for themselves because they're like, yeah, well, we'll do some good for the community but what are we getting out of it and some of them are more altruistic than others so there's like a really interesting dynamic in there so i mean these comics are just yeah i mean you look at the care that they took even just in the printing if you read like inside the comic they're like oh you know we spent all this time we they actually stole the gal who developed valiant's special printing coloring process and had her create an even better one for them so it's really interesting what they did here but yeah i mean milestone is coming back as everybody has heard from the DC fandom event, so it'll be really interesting to see what the the rebooted versions now will will turn out to be. Yeah, that's cool. It's too bad that McDuffie isn't here to to shepherd it back into existence there. Unfortunately. They did a really nice segment on the most recent DC fandom event, talking about him and their plans for the Milestone characters, and it was really nice. It was was a touching kind of tribute slash like, hey, these characters are important, we're going to bring them back, and it it was 
was very, very nice to watch. All right. Well, maybe one of them will get turned into a TV show one of these days. So, Michael, why don't you take us into Heroes in Motion? So apparently, Rob Liefeld is meeting with Steven Spielberg to create a new ecological superhero film called Dooms 4, with Rob creating characters and storyboarding the action. This movie never happens, thank goodness. (laughs) Like all of Rob's projects outside of comics, but he sure milks the fact that he once had a meeting with Steven Spielberg <laughs> on his podcast and other interviews. In the same Wizard News item reporting on Rob Liefeld's project with Steven Spielberg, it's also mentioned that Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane are developing film and television projects as well. Jim does eventually get a Wildcats animated series off the ground, while Gen 13, the movie, is completed, but never released commercially. There was a Gen 13 movie, Adam? You can watch it on YouTube tonight. Oh, Oh, really? Really? Oh, wow. It's animated. It's an animated film. but I I don't care. It's cool. It was going to be released by Paramount, but it didn't happen. Wow. Of course, Todd McFarlane creates a successful Spawn animated series for HBO and a feature film for New Line Cinema. I like the Spawn film. I know people have a lot of complaints about it, but I thought it was a very good film. I think it was way ahead of its time. Very faithful to the comic, and I don't know what this new film he's making with Blumhouse is going to be, but we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. Lorimar Television and ABC Network are developing a two-hour Superman TV pilot, plus six one-hour episodes that will become Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. I remember when this show premiered, that first pilot, and you see Dean Kane kind of like rise up from outside the window of the Daily Planet. And it was kind of cool. It was sort of iconic. As a kid, even though I knew the show was kind of cheesy, I loved it because it was like, it's Superman on TV again in color. And it's like, this is fantastic. What you guys thought about Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman? I definitely watched it just because it was on. And like you said, Superman was on TV. I liked Lois. <laughs> uh, I like Lois a lot. Dean Kane, I never really dug that much, and I had a little problem with the Superman S symbol. Like I, I, I thought they did it weird. I don't, I don't think I'll be able to describe it very well. Like it's too curvy, or there's something weird about the S in it, and that, that always bothered me too. But Terry Hatcher as Lois, sure, I'm on board. <laughs> I was excited it existed, but I will tell you that I watched more episodes of Mantis on Fox than I ever watched of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. So, best moment for Lois and Clark is in the pilot, maybe it's the second episode, I can't remember exactly, but she's over in Clark's apartment, and he's in the shower, and she's sort of like going through his refrigerator to try to find something to eat, and it's just filled top to bottom with Twinkies. Ah! And and then he walks out, glasses on, no shirt on, and he's ripped. And she's looking at the Twinkies and looking at him. And she's like, huh? Like, it was like the funniest thing. And she makes a funny line that I don't remember what she says, but just like the 
holding Twinkies in her hand, but sees this ripped guy with no shirt on. She's like, how does he eat all these Twinkies? And he looks like that. I don't know. Which is pretty funny. So the next why does bit, he refrigerate his Twinkies? What is what is, what is that about? What, is he an alien from another world? <laughs> on another DC front, the direct-to-video Batman the Animated Series feature film we all know as Mask of the Phantasm is currently being produced under the working title of Masks. While officially Batman the Animated Series has been changed to Batman the Series for internal reasons <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> what i know is that a weird thing he's like we're gonna report on this they're calling it batman the series now <laughs> but they uh, don't change it to that they, they go yeah from, we still it, call it, it the animated series yeah. yeah it's really it's really odd again he says internal reasons so maybe like legally it was called batman the series not the animated series i don't know all right but uh, I'll just throw in a huge fan of uh, Mask of the Phantasm. Me uh, too. Love that, that movie. We've been singing the praises the last few episodes. Oh, I definitely. I, I almost want to see if we could do like a, you know, if we have to do Darkman suit, we should really do Batman Mask of the Phantasm <laughs> as well, my friend. Just as a, I think we will. Okay, we really will have to get into that. But if I got to suck it up through Darkman, I'll, I'll watch <laughs> Batman the Animated Series' uh, Mask of the Phantasm. I'm so, with Michael on Darkman, then. If, if if there's a dispute and one is against, then I'm I'm on the against team. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Vindicated. <laughs> After six months, I feel vindicated. Unlike uh, uh, the Sandlot and those other movies, I did see Darkman in the theater, and I was like, what am I looking at here? Right? Okay, good. All right, well, i got to suck it up and watch this thing, because we'll, we'll be doing it very soon. Ugh. All right. Anyway. <laughs> Andy Mangles reports that Biker Mice from Mars has fulfilled its 13-episode run requirement for syndication, describing it as a concept that two- to six-year-olds should love. <laughs> okay. And it is the last animated project to have the Marvel Productions logo on it. Mm-hmm. Not even X-Men features that logo. What is Biker Mice from Mars? I've never heard of this. I have only heard of it. So, like, I've, I've heard that title, and I don't know anything more about it. I remember the Marvel Productions logo, though, I think. that I, I can't remember what cartoons it was, but, like, it was a Marvel logo and then, like, a kind of a CG-ish Spider-Man would jump on top of the logo at the end. It was cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, I do remember that. I always saw it after Muppet Babies. Oh, that's <laughs> wild. I don't remember where I saw it, but that's interesting. It was on Muppet Babies. And this last part of Heroes in Motion is something that I am super excited about. It's a movie that I loved growing up as a kid. Robert Townsend's superhero film, Meteor Man, is arriving in theaters this month. It was advertised in Marvel Comics, who produced a comic book adaptation of the film and followed it up with a limited ongoing series that acted as a sequel we never got in theaters. I did not know that that even existed. I want to find that now. Adam, I feel like it's something you would know. Have you ever seen this comic? I have one issue of the the sequel series, the ongoing series after. But as I've been doing a lot of research, there are ads that keep popping up in the Marvel books for 1993, you know, saying, see the movie at theaters and read the comic and then continue on the adventure. Like, so they really had the whole marketing behind it. Like, as much as you love Blank Man, I think Meteor Man is my version of that. It's kind of this <laughs> obscure film that a lot of people don't talk about. 
But what's really interesting, actually, is that Robert Townsend did this other movie about being a black actor in Hollywood. And in that, he has a dream sequence where he's playing like a black Superman. And so it's just really interesting that he must have just had that germ of an idea and then said, hey, let me make my Meteor Man film. (laughs) It's a little meta in a a sense, if you think about that. That's pretty funny. Yeah. You know, I don't know. This particular movie, I thought it was a very clever idea, even though it's silly and it's superhero film. It also was kind of like grounded in where it was. Like he wasn't like a superhero trying necessarily to save the world, Mm -hmm. but he was trying to save his area of the city. And I thought it was really cool, like just how he would hold on to the media rock and get a little extra power toward the. It was just I love this movie. It's a really great film. It is. It's got good heart. And that is our Heroes in Motion for March of 1993. All right, well now it's time to get into all those gimmick comic books. So let's dig into Guy Gardner's Gimmicks A Go-Go. How bizarre! So there's an actual article in this issue called Foiled Again, which highlights the history of the multiple cover gimmicks and various enhancements as they've started to appear. So this is really interesting. So Rob Liefeld, there he is again, (laughs) does provide some good information on his podcast because he is adamant that this whole multiple covers gimmick actually began through DC Comics with Legends of the Dark Knight, which came out in 19. 89 on the heels of the Batman film. And so what happened was they released the first issue with multiple color paper covers. But nobody ever talks about that. You know, based on how Wizard reports the story of gimmick covers, it was Spider-Man number one was the beginning of the trend, right? And I think maybe just because the sales of that were so huge, I don't think Legends of the Dark Knight was selling, you know, millions of copies necessarily. So maybe it's just to say, well, the gimmick that worked. But I I just find that interesting. Did you, as a Batman fan, Michael, do you remember Legends of the Dark Knight? Did you have one of those comics? I have maybe one or two issues. I more remember the toy line that came out years later because mm-hmm. there, there was a big, like, commercial ad campaign where, like, you know, they're almost, like, monstrous versions of Batman and Batgirl and all the different characters with, like, bat wings, and it was a little bit more terrifying. And I do remember the action figures and the commercial more than the actual run of books. How about you, Rob? Uh, I was just going to ask about the action figure line because I'm pretty sure we had some of those. Is there, like, a... Uh, long-haired pirate joker or yep. something yes that there location? was yeah, swashbuckling <laughs> batman and yes, yeah yeah <laughs> so i remember i remember the line more than i certainly don't remember that comic uh I was uh, still getting comics uh, when Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man number one came out, and I got it to read. In terms of any of these crazy covers, I remember the only ones that I think I got, and not for the covers, just again because I was reading Spidey stories anyway, it was those uh, Spider-Man holographic covers. Yeah, mm-hmm, uh, for the 30th a, anniversary. Yeah, right. and uh, I, I have to admit, those are pretty cool. <laughs> But if they were worth anything, it, it that went right over my head. Uh, I just was like, "Oh, cool cover," you know. And I just, I would just sit and just kind of, you know, twist it and turn it in the light so I could see Spidey move in there. And I thought that was pretty cool. 
Yeah, definitely. Now, what's interesting is outside of just the covers, they mentioned the idea of binding in trading cards into the comic. So Youngblood number one did this. And uh, are you listening, Chris Ward? Ralph Snart from Now Comics. <laughs> Chris brought that up during his interview on The Wizard Files as his introduction to comics. Wow. And then the Lobo's Back miniseries, because that's how they were doing Lobo books, they actually bound in all three of the variant covers into the first issue, so you did not have to buy multiple copies. So DC's like, ah, guys, we're helping you out. (laughs) I don't think that's how it works, so they kind of missed the point of multiple variant (laughs) covers. But still, uh, what's interesting, though, is they said, now, how do you determine if gimmicks are worth it. So they have their network of retailers that they interview. And so they were talking to a few of the owners and what they said was DC doesn't market their books as well. And that's why Marvel sells better. Marvel makes it an event. You know, they don't just put a couple ads in their comic books or in a you know comic magazine. Like they really get the word out, at least traditionally, because it sounds like going forward from the death of Superman, DC has a pretty good idea of what they need to do. But surprisingly, Wizard reports that after checking with comic store owners, Spider-Man number one's many variants of polybags and what have you were big sellers, but that the multiple covers for X-Men number one quote, languish in back rooms unsold. But another seller said that he was pricing overstocked copies of Spider-Man number one at 50 cents a piece just to make room in his storage space. So I think it's got to be regional. It's got to have something to do with that. So, you know, some towns are Spider-Man towns, some towns are X-Men towns, some towns are Superman folk, you know? I tend to agree. I mean, like, it also depends, like, the comic shop. Like, if the comic shop is more advertised, you know, DC-centric, you might see more DC books sell than than a place that is more Marvel and so on and so forth. In my opinion, that's what I've seen. Now, in uh, Los Angeles, though, at Gold Apple Comics, Bill Leibowitz, the owner there, he held a publicized signing of Youngblood Number 1 with Rob Liefeld appearing in store, but he got local news coverage and so on and so forth. So he said over a seven-hour period, he sold 3,000 comics. And so he admits that the hoopla over the Youngblood comic came more from staging the event, in his opinion, but that any retailer could have done the same. So it's like, yeah, you could have a big stock of books, but if nobody knows about it, nobody thinks it's a big deal, you know, you gotta tell them it's a big deal. So he also describes the attendees of his event as, quote, a very Guns N' Roses crowd. (laughs) Just takes you back to that moment in time, right? Some ripped jeans and leather jackets and bandanas. But But finally, Wizard states that back in 1969, so this gimmick thing is not a new development, a miniature copy of Amazing Spider-Man number 42 was bound into copies of Esquire and iMagazine. So marketing gimmicks, you know, like this, this is something that they were doing. And I think it's so interesting because I actually was able to go on eBay and find copies of this. I don't know if you guys got to look at those. You really did of the miniature uh, book? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So it's so that really exists and it was, you know, attached right there. And you can say, hey, and it's weird because it's not a mini comic like we think of, like the ash can size. It's cut in half horizontally. <laughs> so it's like they put it together in a comic strip style. Really? That is so weird. Hey, this John Ramita art is great, but I, I wish it could be smaller. <laughs> <laughs> like, such a... 
Perfect. Remember, like, they used to sell the mini Marvel comics in the cereal boxes? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. I have a bunch of those. And whenever, and I, whenever I think about, like, miniature, I, I envision, like, a wallet-sized Spider-Man book that I got out of a Honey Nut Cheerios box as a kid. <laughs> And of course, you know, they say that ultimately what it comes down to, though, is you can have as many gimmicks as you want, but if the story inside doesn't deliver, then the interest will wane. Hello, Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man. Yes. <laughs> so it's one of those things where, I don't know, you know, people still say, well, I just look at it for the art. Well, good for you. So, Michael, something you may have missed, but on the back of Wizard Issue 19, there was an ad for a special promotion that Wizard was running with Harris Comics for Kane Number 1. Now, Harris Comics was also publishing Vampirella, and I don't think they knew what they had because they were really pushing this Cade character. So anyway, the gimmick is that this issue of Wizard, issue 20, came with a special trading card polybagged, but it has a shape cut out of it. So it's like a picture of Kane, the character who's like this cyborg bounty hunter guy, and then it's got this space that's cut out. And what they say is you have to buy issue two of Kane to get the second card and then you put the cards back to back and then you open up the inner flap of the comic where there's all these like seemingly random colors and shapes and you put the two cards on there and it will reveal to you who is the true bad guy of this series did you catch all that <laughs> yeah sure i fell Easy. asleep about two minutes into that so yeah. i really don't know what and happened. when you figure it out then you can send in the answer to harris comics and you will be entered to win one of 100 signed special editions of kane number one all that work for a little yeah, signature so... from someone you don't know yeah <laughs> for a character you never even heard of other yeah than, right <laughs> so of course i gotta see this firsthand right so i bought kane one and two because i gotta know i gotta know was the hype all it was or was there something behind it and i'm sad to report that while the art is okay the story is so convoluted it's like two comics concepts put into one because Cade, like i say is a, a cyborg bounty hunter his cybernetics a spotlight pops out of his head i don't know why that <laughs> helps him bounty hunt at night i don't know and then he's got a gun but he is connected to the gun cybernetically so he can control it with his mind so he's cable yeah he's cable and i'm just yeah. like yeah okay and he's not that interesting really he's like got like a southern accent that's about his only distinguishing feature then in the mix all of a sudden there's also this woman that transfers over from another realm and she is blind to everything but emotion so she sees the world in colors of emotion and then she is somehow listed as a missing person. Then Kane is sent to find her. There's government conspiracy. So this is the thing, though. So this book is written by the guy David Quinn, who is the guy we've been talking about, Faust, right, Michael? That Faust comic yes, came up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he also has a column in Wizard that's been ongoing. And his comic reads about as well as his column. He's <laughs> got a grasp on what he's saying. I can't catch it. 
Uh, I don't know if he thinks he's being clever. It's just so hard to follow anything. Uh, issue two is a little bit more streamlined, but yeah, Kane number one and two from Harris Comics not lighting up the charts. And I don't know how many people went in for that signed copy of number one and went through all that work. <laughs> Did anybody buy issue number three is the real question. <laughs> I don't think there is an issue number three. No I, way. I went looking and what I found was one, two, and then a flip book. So what it is is one side is Kane, and then the other half of the book is Vampirella. So I think they said, oh, okay, this is not working. If everybody wants to complete the set, I guess they'll get a Vampirella story, then they'll start buying her books, which is what happened. Uh, Adam? Yes? Who's the true villain of the series? You're leaving me totally <laughs> hanging here. It's driving me crazy. Who, who's the Abel. villain? Kane and Abel. You would think, right? Th- this is the thing, though. The story isn't teasing a secret villain. <laughs> That's not part of the story. Ah, that's great. It's very clear who the villains are. They're government bad guys. I actually only got the card that came in Wizard. My copy of number two that I got, I got no card that came with it. I was pretty upset because I thought at least I could solve the mystery, but nope, no luck. I'm going to say it's the Deanna Troy empath woman who, who, who's blind. Captain, that Klingon appears to be angry. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Counselor. Thanks. So, Rob, you probably know about this one, too. In addition to the hologram covers for the 30th anniversary, there was also Web of Spider-Man number 100 coming out this month, featuring a green holographics cover, which is basically like holographic webs on a green background. Uh-huh. And it was the debut of what Wizard calls the spectacular eyesore spider armor (laughs) although that enhancement to the cover is not mentioned in this solicitation Mm. but what did you think about spider armor there rob Generally, on Web of Spider-Man, I, I, I would assume then Alex, I'm not sure how to say his last name, but you think it's Saviak? Is that, is that a decent pronunciation of the artist's name? Do you Sounds think? about right. Yeah. I mean, in general, I really liked his artwork, but if he designed the spider armor, maybe he wasn't having a great day that day when he was uh, throwing that together. It's weird how nostalgia comes into play. So at the time, I'm like, oh, goofy, stupid, whatever. And then 2018, the, the Spider-Man video game comes out, and that spider armor is one of the choices. And I was like, oh, this is so cool! You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so nostalgia really does uh, work into that, because then, then you kind of remember it fondly when you're, it's, you know, 20, 30 years later. Yeah, and I was always a fan, because I I have this issue of my long box. In fact, I bought the Toy Biz action figure of the Spider Armor, and I still have it to this day. I, it's weird though. Like I'm like today, I do, I dig it. I like, but at the time, I think I was like, oh, like I felt like I'm sure that it was a gimmick or something. Yeah. Now the thing about this is though, it only lasted for this one issue. It's basically Spider-Man's going into battle against a team of supervillains, so he somehow adds an extra element to his web fluid that <laughs> simulates metal. So it's not actually made of metal. It's just a harder webbing that has been shaped into this armor and then he gets super heat blasted on him followed by super cold so it makes the armor brittle and then he just has to break out of it because he's <laughs> melted into it and then you know and then it's over no more spider armor what and done uh, for this issue i don't i don't remember i didn't dig through any boxes to see if i had the issue but i did try to 
look it up because I knew we'd be talking about it on Marvel Unlimited. It is not there for some reason. Wow. They've got a lot of Web of Spider-Man and a lot of the other issues, other books, but they don't have 100 from Web of Spider-Man. Wow, so it really is a collector's item. Yeah, Can't even yeah. get it digital. Hang on to those <laughs> physical copies. Uh, but speaking of valuable comics, Michael, why don't you take us into... Punisher's Price Guide. So we're going to dive into something that I'm a little surprised we're even going to be listing here, but sure, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll go for it. Ren and Stimpy number one is on the top ten list at number six because it was under-ordered by most retailers. The issue came polybagged with either a Ren or Stimpy air unfreshener. Hmm, <laughs> interesting. The Ren edition is listed at $16 in 1992, and the Stimpy edition is listed in the Wizard Price Guide at $7. Now, on eBay, you can get the Ren edition for $5.50, and the Stimpy edition for $5. Sorry, Ren and Stimpy. Number one is a burnout. You idiot! <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the, uh, the smell was for the unfreshener. It's it's like the Monsters, Inc. Uh, odorant. That's what they have over there in the, the monster world. Yes. I wonder... It smells like it log. Big, it's heavy, it's wood. <laughs> log. Probably smell like log. Or kitty litter. Yeah, I don't know. Because I have a copy of it, but I think I bought it as a back issue because my, I never had the unfreshener. I didn't get the polybagged edition when it first came out. Yeah, Red and Stimpy, very big on Nickelodeon at this time. And I actually was always a bigger fan of Powdered Toast Man, <laughs> which is their superhero in their universe. And so I actually have another later issue that is Spider-Man versus Powdered Toast Man. Ah! It's pretty great. And there's also a, they did a Powdered Toast Man special, so he got his own devoted comic once too. I have that. Yeah, but it's so interesting to think that this cartoon comic would end up on the top 10 list and in fact there are more to come in the future so stay tuned well, Red and Stimpy was kind of huge at that time. Like yeah. it was, it was a, a show you watch as a kid. You're like, I can get away with watching this, and this is kind of like awkward, funny, and I don't even know if kids our age you would even fully understand a lot of the jokes they were making on the show. But I just think, like I said, reference log. Like that song was embedded in my brain for like three years, where I would just sing it on the school bus or whatever. Yeah, my friends actually insulted me once by singing that song. We were actually recording on an audio cassette, so I have it for all time. Well, it's downstairs, yeah, yeah, the air rolls over your neighbor's dog. It's fun, it's fun, it's fun, it's fun, it's fun, 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 fun. It's fun, it's fun, it's fun, it's fun, it's fun, it's fun, it's because you suck. Now back to the it's in the morning show. <laughs> so that was our little log exchange <laughs> that's funny but yes red and stimpy very big deal and speaking of big deals it's time that we get going on jim and todd's hype machine the headline in wizard news the big cover page story is that there is a Valiant and Image crossover project called Deathmate. Have you guys ever heard of Deathmate? Oh, yeah. I got a poster on my wall. 
<laughs> yeah, I have that same poster. I was gonna, I was going to say it sounded like it was created by like one of those random name generators. <laughs> it's a Charles Bronson movie. Surprisingly, it does play into the story. It actually is a relevant title. All right. But yeah, but th- think of it. It's the two hot new kids on the block, Valiant and Image, teaming up. This is going to be the event that destroys Marvel and DC. <laughs> this is what will prove that they are the dominant force of the new generation. That's not how it worked out. Uh, we will go into more detail on Deathmate as it is covered in the future. But if you listen to actually our recent The Wizard Files interview with a comic book store owner, he mentioned having 50 copies of just a single issue of Deathmate still in stock in his garage. So there was something going on there. But what's interesting is that, you know, given Wizard's love of both publishers, they claim that it looks to be the biggest comic book event of 1993. But this is because because Valiant and Image are planning an artist tour that will go to comic shops nationwide and get your copy of Deathmate signed, as well as promotion on MTV. Because these days, Rob Liefeld is in Jeans commercials. He's a big deal. So he's connecting with the kids. But interestingly enough... Todd McFarlane, Will Sportasio, Jim Valentino, and Eric Larson, so more than half of the Image founding crew, are not participating in this event. So it is just Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, and Mark Silvestri. So the characters you see in this crossover event, a whole lot of Valiant, and then it mixes in, you know, you got some Wildcats, you got some Youngblood, you got... So you get these characters, but you don't get Spawn. You don't get, surprisingly, Savage Dragon, if you can believe that. <laughs> no Shadowhawk. Like, it's so weird that there's a couple of guys there say, oh yeah, we're interested. It's an image thing. Is it really... it's a slightly less than half of image so but that being the case let's take a look here at our tally for this issue we have jim lee coming in at five mentions todd coming in at six that brings jim's total up to 125 still securely in the lead as todd trails behind with 111 todd what are you gonna do to catch up did you go back and count jim's name or did you just amend he who shall remain nameless (laughs) so rob was erased from the wizard's timeline i literally grabbed every previous issue and counted up jim lee's name (laughs) that's dedication (laughs) are you are you you all right my friend (laughs) (laughs) we have a commitment to accuracy and facts on this podcast and we must provide the truth somebody would challenge us on it someday and it would be the downfall of the podcast i do it for you michael your name is involved in this too you do it for the facts i just do it for the nonsense so there you go (laughs) but okay wow wow dude you would i have to talk to your wife She was at work, the kids were taking a nap. I seized the moment, as they say. (laughs) Fantastic. Speaking of seizing the moment, I think we're ready to really get deep into a comic, so Michael, take us into... Robin's Reading Rainbow. And this month marks the launch of a major comics event of the 90s with a new book from Marvel, Spider-Man Unlimited Number 1, the beginning of a massive 
14-part crossover event, Maximum Carnage. Rob is a major Spidey fan, so what do you think of Venom, Carnage, and the whole 90s era of Spidey books? What do you think? Yeah, um, <laughs> so yes, uh, I am a, a, a admitted, I'm a, I'm a dedicated comic book reader, I'm a Spider-Man fan, but I have to say that when the 1990s came, and it, there's, there was a point in the 1990s, and I'm not exactly sure when, I, I just couldn't stand up to it anymore, it, it, it finally broke me, and and I stopped, I stopped reading comic books, so this is, that's, this is the era, and I think I've heard other people have similar stories where... When girls came around, period. Yeah, girls... <laughs> came around uh, and the stories just weren't sparking for me over there so like i would still like reread comics that i already had so i wasn't like done with comics altogether but i was done with buying new stuff for a while and it was spidey books and it wasn't i don't think maximum carnage was the last nail in the coffin for me but it was getting there uh, at this point let me preface everything that i'm about to say if i bash on anything these writers david michaelini terry cavanaugh jm D. Mateus, if that's how you say his name, Tom DeFalco, everyone else who worked on the book, they're way more talented and dedicated to the craft than I am or I ever could be. So I respect them all. They've all written good stories. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I particularly like a lot of uh, David Michelini's and uh, J.M. D. Mateus's uh, uh, run. Uh, like yeah, they, Craven's they Last Hunt. Yeah. Sure, Craven's Last Hunt. And pretty much right before Maximum Carnage started was the end of the Harry Osborne as Green Goblin tormenting Peter and Spectacular Spider-Man like that. They talk about it in this uh, story, the Maximum mm-hmm. Carnage story, about what had just happened. And I thought that was all great. So, But there was something, there's something about, for me anyway, Venom and then Venom's spinoff Carnage that just didn't work for me. So uh, David Michelini had introduced Venom in, I think, Amazing Spider-Man 300, if that's right. I believe that's right. Uh, and I was on board for the, you know, the early appearances of, of Venom. Like he was scary, he was cool. It was it was a good way to continue the symbiote story. But the, his second appearance, or his fifth appearance, uh, was when I started really getting sour on the idea of Venom. Like, the 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 more he showed up, and the more often he threatened to eat Spider-Man's brains, like, it might be scary the first time you hear it, but the ninth, like, you're like, I don't, you know what, I don't think you're gonna eat Spider-Man's brains. I just, I don't think so. And then, you know, <laughs> Mike Linney would throw in different organs, but it just wasn't enough to really keep it fresh for me. And the more popular venom became the less on board with the character that i became and then he became so popular that i think either it was david michelini himself or or editorial or something like well he's pretty popular we can't make him a complete villain let's you know make him a lethal protector and we'll we'll have all these really interesting situations where oh no for the 600th time spider-man has to team up with his worst enemy uh they hate each other but they must work together it's the only way and uh, all that stuff was really chapping my butt <laughs> as, I, <laughs> I was reading, as I was reading it. So by the time Venom does that one, he escapes from prison, right? And he leaves a little bit of the goo behind and creates carnage. And I, I believe, again, as a reader, I don't know this. I haven't read any research about it. If editorials like, well, we need a symbiote who's just an out-and-out villain at this point. That's how Carnage came to be, because he was Eddie's cellmate, and then he, he got the a little bit of symbiote on him, and, and horrible villain was born. So this story starts, I was still reading the book, I think, at this time, but I didn't, I don't think I was collecting all of the 
issues because for this episode, I, I reread them all in Marvel Unlimited. And I don't I think it was the Spider-Man Unlimited. So so just the very first chapter and the very last chapter, I think, that I had not read before. And uh, so so this time I've, I've read it all completely and I didn't enjoy it. Uh, very much. I it actually had a, a, some of the same issues for me that the Spider-Man animated series did. Like I enjoyed that animated series, uh, particularly like the first season. And I think it was because it was pretty simple in the first season. It was you know Spider-Man was uh, having adventures, Peter Parker was having troubles, and then there would be a villain, a villain one. Uh, they would have a story, you know, they'd go back and forth. You know, Spidey would lose, then he would win, and then that's the end of that episode. Yeah, a very successful episode. As that series went on, they just kept throwing more and more and more characters in the mix, so that. Like by I don't I can't remember when it really got started where it devolved for me where it was kind of just melees all the time the and final the fact season that of that series when like Hydro Man makes a water version of Mary Jane and the whole yes yeah. oh yeah I remember that <laughs> yeah and, and then they th- they bring in the Avengers at one point and yeah like, they did a whole Secret Wars series like, like and yeah Silver Sables in a couple episodes Dormammu yeah. was the bad yes. guy the big bad yes. for a whole season yeah, yeah. yeah. and then Madame Web is like the final couple of episodes and then it just ends on this cliffhanger and you're like uh uh okay <laughs> Precisely. Right, yeah. and in those it just kind of became chaos and i felt like that was a little bit this story too where you just have you know five six villains and five heroes and you'd have a splash page and some of the heroes were night watch <laughs> Oh, which, no. I, which I have to say, rereading this, I was like, who? And I'm sure I read them back in the 90s, but I do not remember anything about Nightwatch at all. Oh, I, I remember him just because, yeah, every time I picked up a Spider-Man book, they were shoving Nightwatch, a Spawn clone, at me. He looks, that's what I, I, he looked just like Spawn. I thought yeah. that was uh, very intriguing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a dig at, uh, at Todd McFarlane leaving. We're like, oh, we could do that too. But yeah, like, like you say, this issue, so we've been talking about Venom. Venom doesn't really even appear except in one panel of a flashback to yeah. an issue that we actually reviewed, Michael, which was the end of Carnival first reign of terror where they end up at a rock concert remember that they blast off the symbiote with feedback and uh, the the fantastic four shows up at the end and helps out and now the one thing i had forgotten was that carnage keeps his symbiote in his blood so that's like the thing at the very beginning of the story is he's all trussed up like hannibal lecter but then they have to give him a sedative or something, so they jam a needle into his arm, which lets the little trickle of blood out, and then he can become Carnage again. It's like, you guys didn't know that? How long has he been in there with you? And you didn't realize, yeah, nobody scratch him. Nobody, you know, it's really, couldn't he have just scratched himself? There's a lot of issues with, with that particular piece of his thing. But for me, what I found so interesting was, this issue really is Carnage breaking out and rounding up a gang, right? He's getting his crew together. And the woman that he meets is called Shriek. And she's in this black and white costume. And I, I wondered, I was like, did she exist before this? And I was like, no, Shriek did not exist before this that I could find. So wait a minute. So the backstory that yeah. they gave her, like, because they gave her a backstory with, um, didn't Cloak, Cloak like, uh, must have trapped her in his cloak at some point. Oh, that's is what, that, that's la- she, that later in yeah, the story? Oh, okay. It drove her nuts. But then she was happy to be nuts or something. But I didn't know anything about her before this either. I just 
they were just making references to something that happened before that I had no knowledge of. Well, because what she says here, she says, I was enjoying a little harmless mass murder when I ran into a really weird dude who quite literally blew my mind. The docs were trying to glue it all back together, but they seemed to be missing a few necessary pieces. So I'm like, huh? <laughs> Sounds like she had like a bad boyfriend who was a crook and he shot her in the head or something. You know, it's just like, so you're saying that maybe it was inside Cloak's cloak that she yeah. was being driven insane. Later in this 14-part Maxi series, like they, they make it more clear. But I had, again, I had no knowledge of it myself. I never read an issue where, of anything where that happened. But they talk about it, that she was inside the cloak and she went nuts when she was in there and came out, you know, even nuttier than she was when she went in, apparently. Now, how about her pet, the spider doppelganger? Oh, my Lord. (laughs) (laughs) He came into existence because of the Infinity War, which I have never read, but there were all these evil doppelgangers going around. It was actually an issue of Nomad, where there's an evil gambit doppelganger that he fights, and that's how I found out about this whole Infinity War plot. So I was like, oh, that's where the doppelganger from Spider-Man came from? And that's exactly it. There was the Infinity gauntlet then there's the series infinity war and then the last one was infinity something else failure (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) that must be it and apparently uh, i guess they all all those doppelgangers that were introduced in the infinity war or at least except for maybe that gambit one they pretty much all were taken care of or gotten rid of but the spidey doppelganger hung around so the issue was it was fine the art was in my opinion not great um in particular, there's a couple of pages where Peter Parker and Mary Jane are having a conversation, and her face and his face look so flat, like they've both been hit by a shovel, and they're just kind of like <laughs> frozen in that position. And you, it was almost hard to discern, other than having different hair colors, which was which. And the craziest thing about this issue, that it's weird to see... Now, in 2020, Mary Jane is smoking butts like crazy in this issue. She's got her Virginia Slims, yeah. She's just sucking down cigs like there's no tomorrow. It's like, whoa, I didn't even know she smoked cigarettes. Well, Peter calls her out on it at least, though. Yeah, but it doesn't stop her later in the issue where she's still smoking cigarettes later. I was like, whoa, okay, (laughs) all right, whatever. Well, I just like her comeback, though. She's like, what about your health, Peter? Harry is (laughs) one of your oldest friends, but he could have easily killed us both. Your life is in constant jeopardy. Ooh, bird. I I honestly, you know, people will destroy me on Twitter for this. I've never thought that Mary Jane was the best match for Peter Parker. I feel like he's had so many other relationships that I think there's better counterparts for him than Mary Jane. She's always kind of, I don't know. Well, in this era, she definitely was a nagging wife. That was how she was written, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the Ron Lim artwork that you said here on the faces, I mean, he's used to drawing Silver Surfer, you know, so... (laughs) It's weird, I, I... I started as a Ron Lim fan, like the Silver Surfer books and the Infinity Gauntlet, I thought was really good. But like he he does have strengths and I think uh, maybe some weaknesses too, at least as to my undiscerning eye. But yeah, Spider-Man stuff didn't never really work for me. The, the, the last issue of this maxi series, they split the artwork between Mark Bagley, like does the first half and Ron Lim does the second half. And I remember just, you know, reading it for this, I, I got through it and I got through the Mark Bagley 
part and you're like, this is great. And you, you turn the one page and you're like, oh, <laughs> it switched over to Ron Lemon. I was, I was felt real disappointment because I missed the Bagley art. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Bagley, I think, has proven himself to be the MVP of Spider-Man art. But yeah, so it's a good enough introduction, I feel like. You know, it's definitely when you know it's part of a 14-part series, they really gotta <laughs> stretch it out, right? So it really just comes down to Carnage breaks out, Carnage finds some allies, Spider-Man gets wind that Carnage is loose, and so they have a fight on a rooftop, but that's really just a distraction so that Carnage can go after J. Jonah Jameson, and that's how the issue ends, right? right. Hi, honey, I'm back, you know? <laughs> and then, like you say, Venom's not in this issue, so he says, can you guess who's gonna help me go on a Venom hunt? <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, that's, you know, okay, so now the next installment, we're going to see Venom. Great, all right, we'll get behind that. But yeah, so it's it's just kind of like, oh, it's it's a piece of a story. I, I mean, if, if you're going to point to anything that stands out, just that initial breakout by Carnage is really interesting, like, like I brought up, you know, just like the method by which he's released, and you see, okay, you know, you got you to gotta be a little bit smarter around this guy, but also just like the poses are really dynamic with him slashing the guards with a battle axe hand and stuff i mean like that stuff's pretty cool but i feel like the hype around this has to come down to the video game right the video <laughs> game was like mortal Kombat to me like it was a huge deal when mortal Kombat came out you know you had mortal monday and oh you could get your copy of it but then with spider-man and venom in maximum carnage i mean the artwork is so iconic these like blood red skies and carnage like creeping over the skyline I mean, it's, just, it's so intense and i remember renting that from blockbuster quite a few times and playing it i had a good time what about you guys you ever play the video game i'll jump in and, and be the the party pooper and say i deliver deliberately didn't play that video game <laughs> just oh. because I'm such a non-fan of Carnage. Although I will freely and happily admit that the artwork on the case is very good. Like, it does look super creepy and, and cool the way uh, they have the red skies and Carnage kind of creeping over the city. But yeah, I love Spider-Man and all media. I, I played the, like that Sega game with Spider-Man oh, and the Kingpin. Yeah. Uh, but this one came out and I was like, no, I'm not getting it. And I, <laughs> and I didn't do it. And uh, maybe um, maybe now later I wish I had, but I, I didn't at the time because I just was such a not fan. Now, was it ever I, I was a Sega Genesis kid. I didn't have uh, Super Nintendo. Was it on Genesis or was it only on Super Nintendo? Oh, no, it came out for both. Yeah. OK, then I, de I definitely did not have it. I never played it. I, too, have never been a fan of Carnage. And I have, like, a lukewarm opinion about Venom. And, yeah, it was just something that wouldn't have gravitated to me. I do remember the commercials for it being advertised mm -hmm. for the game. But, no, I never played it. I don't know. Like, I think the idea behind Carnage of being, like, that he's a serial killer and he's also now got the... It's such a great, like, hook. But as a character, it just doesn't sell it for me. That's why I'm kind of skeptical how it's going to be in the next movie, even yeah. though it's Woody Harrelson playing it, which is super exciting, but we'll see how it goes. Like He has to be terrifying, in my opinion, to be to be worth it. You may have already spoken of this in another uh, episode, but I... So what do you think? Of, did you guys see Venom? Again, I sort of didn't see it because... I didn't of, see it I either. Mean, I haven't seen okay. it. What? Oh. You guys haven't seen it? No. I bought the special boxed edition that came with a Venom action figure <laughs> for my collection. It's a movie that it's surprisingly work like i was really hard on thor ragnarok people love thor ragnarok and i thought it was very uneven in its tone of comedy 
and then trying to go serious in some parts. But for me, like, Venom had a very humorous, quirky tone to it throughout. And uh, so I really enjoyed that they were consistent on that side of things. Yeah, that's good to hear. I And if it comes somewhere, you know, some streaming thing that I'm already subscribed to, I, I'd probably watch it. Right. But I... I I didn't go to the theater and uh, like I didn't rent it or anything is uh, either. But uh, but the fact that like, the tone thing you said is good. It's good news to me because I felt the same way about that Thor Ragnarok. There is so much tragedy in there and they keep going like yeah 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 exactly you know, like, throughout and you're like oh, wait and everybody's like just the greatest movie ever. I'm like uh... <laughs> the beginning is funny and it's allowed yeah. to be funny, but then your whole civilization is being destroyed and you're just gonna yuck it up. Yeah, that's yeah. no good. No. Good good i I was gonna say the thing that bummed me out about the venom film was i was really hoping that it was going to be interconnected with that movie life with jake gyllenhaal (laughs) secretly yeah because it was like a rumor online that it could have been a connection to it like that was a possible prequel to it or something like that and then when i found out that it wasn't i was like eh, care less i don't yeah moving on now tom hardy's really good at it i want to see it i'll wait but i'll see it at some point when it's on some sort of free streaming service that i can watch period yeah same here all right. Well, Rob, we really want to thank you for joining us. This was a ton of fun, and your spider knowledge and spider fandom came through. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I had a lot of fun, too. It, it, it's great to even look back on an era where I sort of, like at this, like I said, this era, I sort of abandoned comics, so it's, it was actually really fun. And to see stuff in the Wizard magazine for comics that I sort of maybe peripherally knew were around at the time. I'd never read any image at that point, so like I, I've kind of learned, I've learned a lot today, too, you guys. <laughs> I learn every week. And people want to learn about your podcast, Rob, so where can they find you? Oh, well, uh, I am a part of the After Lunch podcast, so Michael May, me, and a lot of a uh, fourth chair army folks uh, we kind of soldier on after nerd lunch has uh, retired and and ridden off into the sunset so we do a podcast kind of in the same vein as nerd lunch i'm sure a lot of your listeners already know this but i'll just say it maybe there's some new ones recently we did an episode about superhero excesses of the 1990s it was a drill down of the joel schumacher batman movies so a little 90s uh, flair there we uh, just recorded it's not even out yet a halloween episode where we made an, an expendables kind of a team like all with horror movie actors who they all had to be dead. So like we had to pick only <laughs> legendary horror movie actors who are no longer with us and kind of make our own movie out of it. So we just do fun episodes like that. And so if you want to find the After Lunch podcast, go ahead, give it a listen, you can download it wherever podcasts are not sold. <laughs> and if they see want to see some of your personal video and photo nonsense on Twitter, <laughs> how can they find you? I, Don't I'm hack at, your cell phone. <laughs> at, that's right. I'm at Spidey004. That's Spidey004 on Twitter and uh, Instagram as well. But it's pretty much the same content both places. So choose your poison. Your podcast poison. Hey, bring it back back. around. (laughs) Very nice. Well, uh, with that, we want to thank everybody for listening. Of course, we'll be coming back at you with a mini episode. We also have some more episodes of The Wizard Files lined up. Some very interesting guests, although you may see a little bit of a gap as we're trying to also bring you a bonus episode. A horror hero from cinema. Michael, what are we going to be talking about? Dark man. Yeah, okay. Uh, so as we've mentioned, you know, this is like the 30th anniversary of Darkman at this point. I don't know. This is just a movie that I've been begrudgingly trying to put off watching, but I have committed to doing it because we did a vote many months ago, and I will find a way to get through it. (laughs) But 
as a caveat, I would like to do a review of Meteor Man at some point, Adam. Yes. Okay. I think, yeah, we, that, that may, he's green. Maybe we'll bring it up for Christmas. What do you say? <laughs> Lovely. That's a red blooded American superhero with a green cape. I like it. I like it. Wait, no, I, I know you want to sign off, but I have a Dark Man thing to say, which I, oh. I, I don't know. Michael, you haven't seen it? Oh, I've seen it. You've seen it. Okay. So I, just I just don't want to re see it. I, I, I hear you. <laughs> That I wanted, I, I forgot if you had seen it or not. My favorite terrible moment in that movie. So this oh, is Darkman has had his whole his whole face burned off. He's got no lips, and yet he is somehow able to say, "I'm not a man. I'm a monster." And if you when you say M words, your lips close together, and that's exactly what happens under the dumb mask he has on that Liam Neeson is wearing the the burned up mask. You see his lips moving behind the fake teeth in the mask <laughs> because because <laughs> it's covering his face completely and i'm in the theater going what <laughs> keep an so, eye out for that so keep an eye out i'm not a man i'm a monster and watch those <laughs> lips move underneath his teeth somehow i just remember the the villain taking the, the cigar cutter and slicing a finger off in that thing and i was like oh boy this is michael is a squeamish boy uh, so yeah. yes this this film it's gonna be a trudge and uh, but that's what halloween's all about guys you gotta face your fears and yep, michael i can't is wait to listen to it. your reviews that's gonna be great oh yeah you should dial in for that one it's gonna be really good. <laughs> but in the meantime be sure to follow us on twitter at wizards comics on instagram at wizards underscore comics and of course we are always trying to bring you more content in between episodes there so be involved on social media we so appreciate everybody who chimes in and comments and participates and of course we also are going to be part of the retro network halloween special we do have an exclusive segment in there talking about the most halloween themed heroes and villains of comic books of the 90s so if you want that little bit of bonus content from wizards make sure you tune in to the retro network halloween special episode so you can follow their twitter feed at trn social to be notified of that particular episode But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.